Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. In this episode of the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, I sit down with woodcarvers John Wagger and Radica Dolchek to discuss their passion for woodcarving and what got them into it, as well as any advice they have for newcomers to the craft. In this discussion, we mentioned several brands and makers of carving tools. Several of these companies are based out of Ukraine or have manufacturing in Ukraine, including Fadir Tools and Beavercraft. More so, many of the tools I use in my forge, including my favorite hammer and touch mark, were made by blacksmiths in the Ukraine. Without these Ukrainian-made tools, I and many of our staff at Canadian Bushcraft could not make the things that we make. More so, many of our staff and friends of Canadian Bushcraft have relatives in many of the countries affected by this war, including in Ukraine itself. Before we go any, uh, any further in this episode, I ask that you take a moment to hope and pray for peace for these wonderful people and their homeland. If you have any expendable income, I ask that you donate to organizations that are helping people in this conflict, including the Red Cross, Amnesty International, and many others. We will be doing so as well. And now to the episode. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. I wanted to announce a very big event happening in the summer of 2022. I want to give you this information now in the wintertime so that you have time to prepare for this because this is a big deal. The 2022 Global Bushcraft Symposium has been announced. It is going to be happening from July 27th to the 31st of July in the year 2022. It is being co-chaired by Lisa Fenton and Paul Kirtley, names that you should be well aware of, folks, especially if you're all into the bushcraft world. Speakers are including Dr. Teresa Camper, Bruce Zawalski, Gordon Dedman, ba- Patrick McGlinchey, and Rupert Brown. These are these and many others are why I'm excited. These are some of the greatest brains of today when it comes down to woodcraft, survival, indigenous ancestral skills, anything you can think of in the realm of bushcraft. It is happening at this event. And it's happening in Wales, United Kingdom in July 27th to the 31st in the year 2022. So pack your stuff up now, get it all ready, get your passport in order, get all the stuff you need in order, because this is going to be a very big event, very, very big event that I am excited to be going to with Ride the Adventure Guy. We may even record a few podcasts with some folks while we're there. Hope to see you there this coming summer from July 27th to July uh, July 31st. If you want to learn more, go to www.globalbushcraftsymposium2022.com. Again, www dot global bushcraft symposium 2022.com to know the landscape is to open up a door to feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before we know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey folks, this is the Hunt Forward to Grow segment of the podcast with Chris Gilmore, my good friend from thehuntersjourney.com, www.thehuntersjourney.com. And a couple weeks ago, our last pot, one of our last podcast episodes was me talking about my seasonal planning from spring, from late winter into the springtime, into the almost summer. Uh, we're going to try and keep this short because, again, it's the segment we already kind of beat that dead horse really well with that podcast episode, a good 45 minutes of me ranting like that. But 
I was real. I realized the other day that's just from where I am. I'm in a southern portion of Ontario, so it makes a lot more sense for me to give you content from other people out there that are in different regions. And Chris is a great resource for that. Chris loves talking about food as much as I do. So Chris, you're about three hours north of me. You've got a lot more snow than I do right now. You've got different seasons, different regions than I do right now or where I am. So Chris, what are you doing right now for seasonal planning? Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit going on right now. Um, I mean, for one thing I do, I grow uh, sprouts like microgreens and I also grow edible mushrooms indoor year round. So that's something I'm tending all the time. Um, so I've got uh, a bunch of oyster mushrooms going right now and sprouts going right now. So that's always exciting. And uh, I guess the first thing that's like coming up, so I'm always trying to think a couple seasons ahead. And I think if you want to get serious about self-sufficiency, self-reliance and food, uh, you really got to be thinking ahead to do it well um, and have any kind of sustained food source. So as far as upcoming seasons, um, so first off, we're going to be starting our spring veggies soon. And I believe we're going to do a whole another little segment on that on a future episode. So I won't say too much on that, but it is February 17th. And uh, come March, uh, I start thinking about putting particular veggie seeds, uh, getting them started. So things like brassicas specifically uh, would be an example of that. So I'll be starting some of my garden seeds. And then basically from middle of March, right through to thaw out and planting in the ground, Every month, there's something that I'm starting and different vegetables you want to be starting at different times. Uh, and that's really, really important. You really don't want to start too soon or too late. Mm -hmm. So tune in. We'll maybe dive into that with a little bit more detail in a future podcast. But just know that if you if you want to get into growing food this year, it's the time now to be thinking. And what you really could do right now is actually order your seeds. Yeah. Um, you don't want to leave that last minute because things do run out. Uh, and that's we're seeing that happening more and more with some of the supply chain issues we're seeing. So that's if you true, haven't ordered true. your seeds yet, take this as a reminder to order your seeds. Um, second thing I'm thinking about right now, um, late season ice fishing. Um, so there's a little bit of a, you know, I find that my favorite time to ice fish is right when the ice first comes out. Basically, as soon as you get that safe ice, um, mm -hmm. I find you always get this really good kind of early ice bite. And then there seems to be like a bit of a lull in February when it gets really cold. Uh, I was out uh, last weekend, two days, and we got skunked both days. Uh, but sometimes we get a, a real nice kind of late season bite in March. Uh, and I love March ice fishing. Um, sometimes you'll literally be out on the ice in a t-shirt and it can be really warm and sunny and the ice is melting. And that might sound scary, but we're actually at the point in the year where the ice is the thickest it's been all year. Yeah. And just because it's warm, it's going to take weeks for it to melt out. Um, so mm -hmm. there's the opportunity for uh, late season ice fishing is going on right now. Uh, and hopefully a little bit of a pickup of the bite in uh, March. Mm -hmm. Um, and then right after ice, uh, one of my things I really look forward to, there's a super short window. It's only a few days of the whole year, which what is what makes it so exciting, but it's smelting. Uh, Ooh, so yeah. if you're not familiar with smelting, uh, there's these tiny little fish. You could kind of call them minnows. They're called rainbow smelts. And they basically spend most of their seasonal cycle deep in the lakes. But in the springtime, you get these mass runs up into the rivers and they literally come up in like the thousands, even the tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really fun because you actually go out at night and you net them. Uh, and in a couple hours on a good run, uh, you can fill up a five gallon bucket with smelts. Um, wow. So I, I've, I've got smelting season on my radar. That, that's going to come right out of uh, ice melt. So that's number three. Um, number four for me uh, is actually the sugar run. Uh, and yes. I know you did a whole episode, Caleb, on, on your sugar bush setup. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, there's maple syrup season. And I will just say to folks, you know, even if you don't have like I had a friend that lived in the city uh, and there was a little literally I don't know if this is legal or not, but there's literally a little patch of woods in Toronto behind a McDonald's 
And he went and tapped two maples at this thing right in McDonald's. And he was able to actually make himself a liter of uh, maple syrup on his nice. stove at home. Right so you on. don't necessarily need to live in a crazy wilderness place to, to do maple syrup. The other thing that I love doing, some years we're too busy to make syrup, but we'll just tap a tree just for drinking the sap. Yeah. And, and you know, super nutrient dense stuff coming out of the earth, you know, full of minerals and all kinds of great stuff after the winter. So uh, maple syrup season's coming up. Maybe that's something people want to consider for the first time. Totally. Um, beyond that, uh, starting to think about the spring hunt. So we have the spring turkey hunt and mm -hmm. uh, the spring bear hunt, uh, both starting up in, uh, I guess, May, I believe both those seasons start. Do you remember the yeah. dates for those two? I believe it's the last week of April is when turkey opens and it goes until the end of May. And I believe bear opens the second week of May, but I'd have to check. I haven't seen the 2022 regs yet, so I haven't been able a chance to keep up with it yet. But it's usually around that time. Yeah, so spring turkey and spring bear, uh, there's something coming up to, to look forward to if uh, that's part of your annual cycle. Um, let's see, what else do I have kind of thinking about? Um, oh, you know what? My, my wife and I just did this the other night. So some of you might be familiar with uh, my wife, Laura Gilmore. Uh, she runs Wild Muskoka Botanicals. So she has a sustainably mm. wild forage foods business. Uh, and we actually map out our harvest season for the whole summer. So we actually sat down the other night. Um, so for example, the first thing we look at in the spring is wild leeks. Uh, mm. And then we transition onto spruce tips and then we get into nettle um, and we go into sarsaparilla. So there's, there's an appropriate time. And we like to just put that out on a calendar so it doesn't catch us off guard and we're looking for it. Because uh, there can be a slight fluctuation in these wild harvest seasons from year yeah, to year. Yeah. And if it's not on your radar, like wild leeks, you know, there really is only like a week where you're going to get them at their prime. And if you miss it, you miss it. You know, yeah. you can't harvest them late. You can't harvest them early. Um, so by just having it on the calendar, here's the ideal week. And then I block off a little bit before we start watching for it. So we just mapped out our wild foraging uh, seasons for the entire year. And then the last one, um, right before the sap starts to come out, uh, again, I'm a mushroom grower uh, and I do grow indoors, but we also grow on logs outside. Uh, oh, I love yeah. growing shiitake mushrooms specifically. Uh, you inoculate a log once, uh, you can get eight years of food off of that one log from wow. one inoculation. It's a, you know, if you want to, people talk about passive income, you want to talk about passive food, uh, <laughs> mushroom growing is it. And it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it. Um, in fact, if you're interested in mushroom growing, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, in mid-March, I'm actually launching a uh, home mushroom growers and wild identification course. Uh, you can find that through our site, uh, huntforgegrow.com, huntforgegrow.com. But anyways, where I was going there is come March, I actually cut my logs before the sap starts to run. Uh, and the reason you can cut them after the sap, but what basically happens once the sap runs, you get this vapor barrier in between the bark and the cambium layer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what it'll do is it'll basically decrease the life of your actual mushroom log. So you might only get six years instead of eight years, maybe only five years, because the bark is going to slide off easier because right. you harvested it when there was moisture in there. Whereas if I harvest my mushroom logs before the sap runs, uh, the bark is going to be stronger on there and it's going to last way longer. So those are kind of the main things that I have kind of coming up. But as you can see, I've kind of mapped out food uh, for the next really right through to the to when I start the fall hunt. So that's yeah. what's on my radar right now, Caleb. Any Anything else that you've got going on that I didn't talk about there or anything else that's on your radar when it comes to wild food? You know, that's a really good breakdown. And I really do appreciate the idea of the calendar system. Uh, where I live, there's, like you said, there's those one to two week windows that seem to happen and there's fluctuations by the seasons, depending on when the ice goes, depending on when the snow leaves, depending on when the temperatures rise. The one that comes to mind is right around when the leaks are getting close to prime is when the fiddleheads come out. 
Oh yeah. And fiddleheads are like candy to me. I like when you see a black bear in a blueberry patch, that is me in a fiddlehead patch. Mm -hmm. I am just going and going and going. And so as soon as I see the leaks, I start scouting, where do I see good like ostrich fern patches? And I got to start watching those because it can happen. It's really wild where I live. We'll sometimes get this week where it's like they're dormant and you're not seeing anything and you're waiting. And then one day it pops up to 20 degrees and they're, they're done. They've, they've already unfurled. They somehow popped up in that one day and unfurled and you missed it. So it's like a very sure, it's like my version of smelting is the fiddleheads. I've get, I get like maybe two days to get out there and find them. And then I'm done for the season. So they're, they're the one that I haven't mentioned before that I'm getting ready for. Fiddleheads are the one that I'm really keeping an eye out. And then the fish runs that happen in the spring for me, because I spear, I spear for walleye, I spear for steelhead and I spear for uh, white sucker, lake sucker. And so that'll be coming up about a week, two weeks after the ice goes. Pretty much as soon as I stop boiling sap, I start getting my spears sharpened. I start making sure that my waders are tuned up and I get ready for sucker season. I get ready for walleye season and whatnot. Awesome. So for folks that are interested in, in uh, integrating more file, wild food into their lives, uh, I'll just quickly let you know, um, we're actually about to launch a, a new site called huntforagegrow.com that's going to be full of videos, podcasts, articles, uh, courses, all kinds of great resources. We're basically making this, uh, this bank around self-reliance and harvesting food from the land, but with ethics and sustainability is like an underlying piece of that. So mm. uh, check out huntforagegrow.com for that. Um, and then, of course, if you want uh, hunting for meat to be part of your journey, uh, then Caleb and I would love to have you as part of our Hunter's Journey community uh, yeah. and course. So if you go to huntersjourney.com, that's a, a community and course that runs year round because there's always things to be working on. Uh, it's, a, it's a lifelong journey of learning. And we have a whole collective of amazing mentors that meet once a month uh, online and you get to attend these monthly calls uh, during the prime hunting seasons. We actually sometimes meet even weekly. And then there's a huge database of written articles, uh, checklists, videos, um, videos, all kinds of stuff that's uh, available if you access this community. Mm -hmm. So uh, the huntersjourney.com if you want to learn to hunt meat and then hunt forage grow if you're interested in all of these other aspects, including the mushroom course I just mentioned. And I'm really excited for the mushroom course. I'm, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to make the segment go too, too long, but I, I just want to make it very clear. I love mushrooms and I know very little about mushrooms. I've been learning for the last two or three years how to identify them better, learning how to grow them. And Chris has been a giant boon to that success rate that I've been having, giving me tips on how to grow them, giving me tips on where to look for certain mushrooms. This is a phenomenal course that's coming out with huntforagegrow.com. So if you're looking for more information, the website draw, drops mid-March. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you, depending on when this podcast drops, it may or may not be live yet, but we're, we're aiming about mid-March for dropping that, uh, the course and this new website. So, and that website is www.huntforagegrow.com. Again, huntforagegrow.com. And of course, if you want to join us on the hunter's journey, go to www.thehuntersjourney.com. And now let's dive into our Q and a from Patreon. Every single episode, we ask uh, we ask our patrons over at Patreon to ask us questions that are bushcraft, homesteading, anything bushcraft adjacent related. And so we have a lot of amazing questions that are coming from a lot of our supporters on Patreon. And each single week, we answer one of those questions or two, depending on how simple the questions are asked. We try to keep this segment under half an hour whenever possible. This week, our patron Byron has asked a really cool uh, homesteading question regarding self-sufficiency and in general homesteading related regarding 
uh, our landscape and how we work with that landscape to grow and raise food. And so I've recently been reading John Seymour's Complete Guide to Self-Sufficiency. In it, he explains how he would break up a one acre small holding into eight equal sections, four for pasture, four for growing crops. These are rotated, so each section has four years growing different crops, three years grazing as pasture, and one year's rest. I'm interested to hear how you would break down a one-acre homestead and how you would manage it for your needs. This is a phenomenal question because this is in line with what we've been trying to talk about with the quarter-acre homestead. Uh, for those of you that are not aware, I have a quarter-acre of land that I've been raising ducks as well as a food forest as well as crops on, annual crops and perennials. Uh, on that land, we're kind of following a very similar process. And so it wouldn't be difficult to extrapolate that or expand that into a one acre holding. Uh, it's a very interesting subject. And when you break it down to those eights, I think that's a really clever system. If you have one eighth that is being left to rest once a year for a whole year or several years, four that are being used for pasture, uh, three that are being used for pasture and four that are being used to grow crops or vice versa, we kind of do it a little bit differently here. Uh, so what I do is we are raising ducks. I have ducks and geese. Uh, currently, we have 30 in the uh, pen. And the pen is about uh, a little bit over half of our quarter acre. So about an eighth of an acre or more. Uh, and inside the other half or less than half, we have uh, annual crops and some perennials. And then interspersed between both the uh, uh, the annuals that are being grown in the crop section and the garden section and the one half that is being uh, where we raise our ducks, we have perennial trees and shrubs. So we have Saskatoon, we have uh, pawpaw, which we're trying to get to grow. It's been very challenging where we are. Uh, and apple trees. We've also tried to grow hascap, which did not do very well because of how we got them and what state they were in when we finally got them. Quince trees. Uh, quince bushes that were doing pretty well until the geese got a hold of them because they were so small. And so what I have done on my quarter acre, which could easily be expanded to one full acre, uh, is I split it right in half pretty much the same way that John has in his uh, in his system of the John Seymour system of one acre holding. And so one half is growing crops, the other half is growing, uh, is raising birds. And those birds are producing fertilizer for the ground. They're also eating up any weeds like dandelions that are coming up and garlic mustard that is coming up, which they then convert into fertilizer for the ground. And they're helping build up that soil base to be more than just clay. Uh, where we live, it's very, very clay heavy. Uh, in some spots, there's nothing growing because the clay is just so dense and there's no real nutrients in it. And of course, it's kind of resisting water and it gets compacted very easily. So one of the first things we did was we laid down wood chip. We put down about six to eight inches of wood chip as a mulch on top of everything, both in the garden and where the duck pen is. And then we let the ducks roam and we feed them good feed, uh, as much variety as possible. We give them kitchen scraps. I'm giving them weeds from the garden. I'm giving them, uh, every once in a while I'll go to the pet store and I'll buy feeder fish. I used to usually feed like piranhas or turtles. And we I toss them into the pond. Uh, that I have built, that me and Rye built for the ducks. And they'll chase those fish down and eat them. So they're getting high protein. They're getting a lot of bugs. Um, during this past summer, we had a lot of LDD moths, uh, aka gypsy moth, which is not a term I like to use, but LDD moths that uh, whose caterpillars were devastating our apple trees, our oak trees, and everything else. We also have oak trees growing in our food forest. And the ducks took care of a lot of that problem. The, the geese took care of a lot of that problem as well. 
And as they eat, they poop and they poop a lot, uh, quite a bit. And of course, in their coop, I'm having to change out their litter at least once every couple of weeks to every couple of months, depending on how much uh, waste they put in, how much smell comes in, how much it gets filled up. And their litter is mainly uh, wood shavings, very fine aspen or pine shavings, as well as a lot of straw in different forms, whether it's chopped up real coarsely or it's just bales of straw. And this mix becomes a deep litter mix that I pull out and become compost very rapidly. Uh, if you're part of our Patreon, you've seen a lot of videos and you've heard us talk about this on Patreon quite a bit. Then there's the duck pond where they swim and poop a lot and they're eating a lot in there as well. And so that water has to get filtered. Uh, on a regular basis, we have a water filter system that runs through during the warm seasons, the growing seasons of the year. The filter is running and pumping their poop water, their filthy water, up through a bunch of different systems, including biochar, but also ceramic. And that ceramic holds nitrifying bacteria and allows that water con uh, to convert from nitrates to nitrogen to allow plants to grow and actually inoculate that into the biochar. And of course, once a month, I drop the pond to get rid of all the sludge, all the muck at the bottom. And when we drop it, I hook up a pump, a uh, transfer pump with a water hose uh, all the way to the garden. And I water my entire garden with duck waste. And this is done with a lot of mulch and a lot of good organic soil and biochar already in that soil. So we're kind of charging the ground once a month with more nutrients, which is going to be very high in potassium, very high in nitrogen, extremely high in phosphorus. All the good things and the building blocks that our, duck, that our, uh, our ducks, that our plants need to grow. Uh, a lot of our annuals at least and then we take the muck that's at the very bottom that can't go through the pump uh, and i scoop that all up and toss it into the compost which goes in with all the duck litter and we're producing all that stuff and so the spot that we have the ducks in currently they're pooping on the ground the wood chip is building up uh, organic matter and with the waste it's holding that waste underneath all that wood chip we actually have biochar that we just simply when we were clearing the area out for the garden we just dropped brush, burned it on the spot. And as soon as it turned to charcoal or to coals, I hosed it down and then covered it with wood chip. So there's a lot of good layers. Every time I pull back that wood chip, I can see nice black rich soil forming. We're seeing earthworms all through the garden now, all through the forest there. The worms are pulling organic matter down from the, uh, the surface, down into the clay. And I'm actually being able to actually break up soil that wouldn't be broken up weeks before. So it's doing really, really good. And it's kind of in league with this John Seymour. I think it's John Seymour. Uh, yeah, John Seymour's system, uh, the complete guide to self-sufficiency. Amazing read, by the way. Amazing read to go through. There's a lot of good permaculture and sustainable agriculture videos and articles and books out there. I highly recommend checking those all out if you're into this kind of stuff. And for me, the plan is the ducks and the geese are wandering through what's going to eventually develop into a more established food forest. Right now, it's got a few apple trees, a few uh, Saskatoons, a few pawpaws. And when our other trees that I've been, as well as acorn, we've got a lot of oak trees in there, red oak and white oak, and even some bur oak. And in the front yard, I'm developing and growing uh, things like a, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm, I'm growing a, uh, proper American chestnut tree in a planter. I'm growing a bunch of other small trees. I'm getting uh, cherry seedlings started right now, and they're all getting developed. And when they get to a certain height that I know that they're not going to get devastated by the geese and devastated by the ducks, they are going to be planted into there as well. And so although I believe in the idea of leaving at least one eighth of the property at rest at any given time, and we are, 
by not cutting down and clearing out all the entire forest and letting the forest develop itself and helping take care of it and doing that kind of like woodlot management around the garden and being able to be prepared later to clear out some of that forest and replace the duck pen into those areas and let them do their work and reestablish the soil in a healthy way. Uh, this can be very easily expanded to one acre. There, there's nothing really different I would do with one acre than I would do with one quarter acre. The difference is uh, intensity of planting. So if you're trying to grow enough food to feed you and your household for an entire season or entire year, out of your garden and you only have a quarter acre, you've got to do a little bit more intensive gardening, which means you're going to be sapping the soil of energy and nutrients very quickly. And so like that, and with what we're doing, we have to intensively uh, mitigate that issue. And how I do that is I have the ducks and their wastewater, their fertilizer. I have that all going into the garden at frequent, at least monthly, if not weekly processes. Uh, we have uh, probably by this, um, May, I would assume. So after one full year of composting, plus I, I, I started the composting in April, but if we go for a full year plus, let's say 13 months, I'll have about 2000 pounds of compost. Not all that will be finished compost, but we'll have about, mm, I'd say 600 or more pounds of compost ready to go into the gardens about a week or two before the growing season. And that's an annual thing I have to do for these annual crops that I'm growing so intensively. I'm growing a lot of corn because I'm trying to produce a lot of corn for food. I'm trying to grow a lot of tomatoes, a lot of peppers, a lot of onions, a lot of garlic, a lot of everything to make sure that I always have enough food stocked up in the house. Squash, beans, sunflowers, everything in the, in the household. And so I have to grow intensively. And again, that can drain your soil of nutrients from minerals uh, to vitamins. You got to be really mindful of that. And so intensive gardening on a small scale needs intensive soil amendments. I'm adding wood ash to the garden. Every time I have a fire, I'm sprinkling it all through. I'm adding mulch and I'm adding compost at least at the beginning, uh, every year at the beginning of growing season. And at the end of growing season, I'm adding compost. I'm also adding biochar and uh, enriched uh, uh, enriched other sources of, uh, sorry, other sources of enriching nutrients to the soil on a frequent basis. Sometimes I'm top dressing, sometimes I'm watering it with duck waste. This can be the same thing with sheep. This can be the same thing with geese. This can be the same thing with uh, any animal, any livestock that you can grow on half an acre or less. Uh, we're doing Waterfowl, uh, I chose waterfowl because they can produce me eggs, they can produce me meat from if I have too many drakes uh, in or uh, yeah, drakes, ganders as well uh, in the geese, I can get meat from them. But then of course, all their waste, I'm feeding them, you know, celery and spinach and kale and green peas and everything else that are waste in the household. If I've got strawberries that are just too mushy for me to eat, I take them out there and toss them in. If I gather a bunch of apples in the fall to make cider and everything else that I want to make with those apples, apple pies, apple cakes, apple turnovers, apple pudding, or uh, sorry, not apple pudding, what's the term? Apple sauce, um, apple uh, leather, whatever soft apples, mushy apples, I take them outside, put them into a tarp and jump on them and stomp on them into mush and then toss that into the into the coop, not into the coop, into the run, the duck run, the, their pen. And I just let them eat it all up, gobble it all up. And they poop out that all over the place. And it's just helping me develop more and more good soil. And that's really the, the main part of sustainable 
farming, sustainable homesteading is trying to make sure that the ground you're raising your food on, whether it's meat or uh, meat or plant, is healthy, extremely healthy. Inside of that whole mix, we also have in the wood chip, we've inoculated it with wine cap mushrooms and oyster mushroom mycelium to try and develop a mycelial or a mycorrhizae system through the whole soil that's going to help the trees, help the plants, the perennials mostly. Fungi really help those perennials. So bushes, trees, long-term plants like rhubarbs, things like that. That's what they really like to work with. And then the nitrogen and bacteria really help with your annuals. So the annuals are the ones that drain soil really quickly of nutrients. Perennials take their time. They they do a long, they're, they're playing the long game. And so having a good mix and diversity in there. Yes, three uh three-eighths of your of your garden can be of your of your homestead's acreage can be uh plants and it could be crops and you can definitely say i'm going to keep this as annuals being mindful that you're going to have to let it rest at least for a couple years every once in a while and have animals on top of it to help do pasture work on it and all that kind of work when it comes to perennials you don't need that as much and so I have a lot of blueberry bushes. I have rhubarb. I have asparagus. I have, uh, again, a lot of different kinds of fruit trees and nut trees. We're getting ready to plant some uh, pecan hickory hybrids in a year or two on the property. I'm getting ready to grow uh, chestnuts on the property, hazelnut on the property, all that kind of stuff. And those can actually grow in amongst your pasture, for lack of a better term, where your livestock is going to be. And as long as you put mitigation to make sure that the animal, let's say goats, don't eat all your shrubs, uh, as long as you can put a protection to protect those from your pigs or your goats or your sheep or your ducks and geese or chickens or quail or whatever you're trying to raise, uh, you're doing good. You're doing really good for them. And they're just going to work along. You don't necessarily have to let that area rest because those plants and shrubs and trees are going to be there indefinitely they're going to always be there and they're just going to need occasional upkeep whether that be pruning or adding some top dressing or adding some nutrients to the soil we have a big big apple tree on my property that belonged to my great grandmother she planted it way way back she was 101 when she passed away when i was like 10 uh, 9 or 10 years old and I'm 33. So this is a very old tree and every couple of springs what I'll do is I'll dig a hole between the roots of this big apple tree and I'll just dump a bunch of fish guts and I'll dump a bunch of roadkill down inside there and cap it off with at least eight inches to 10 inches of soil. And I'll throw biochar all around there and I'll throw mulch on the ground. I'll cut down every single shrub and plant around that apple tree and any competing trees nearby. And I'll chop them all up, turn them into mulch, and I'll put that all around the base of this apple tree to protect it, uh, protect its roots, and to give it more nutrients so this tree can take care of itself for longer term. And it's producing better apples because of that. And every, you know, early, uh, sorry, well, I'd say mid-spring, when it's about minus five or warmer, uh, I start pruning the tree. We, we take off all the vertical branches. I take off all the branches that are kind of mingling with each other and intersecting with each other and conflicting with each other or competing with each other. Uh, to make this tree be able to produce better and be healthier and be less of a risk later. Because if this tree gets way too big, there's a potential the roots are going to start getting pulled up and we're going to have this tree start leaning into the neighbor's yard and hurting something on that property or leaning into, into my side of the yard and hurt something on my property. The last thing we want to do is have a big windstorm and this whole thing come down crashing on top of my duck coop, killing a bunch of my birds. So there's a lot of ways to look at it. I like to look at it from a food forest perspective and I treat the annuals 
almost like prairie. Not It's not the same as prairie because, again, tall grass prairie ecosystems have long-term perennial grasses, perennial forbs, perennial everything. The annuals, I try to treat them more like a lawn. I'm going to give them intensive treatments. I'm going to give them intensive growth, and I'm going to plant them really tight, as tight as they can be growing to, to each other. And then I'm going to cover crop in between them, and I'm going to be changing out and in between the changing. So if I, you know, pull my brassicas midsummer, <clears throat> I'm going to pull them out, reamend the soil, whether that's with duck fertilizer or with compost or with biochar or just whatever it may be. And then I'm going to put in a new crop. It may be radishes. It may be beets. It may be something that I'll be able to harvest in late fall, uh, mid to late fall. Uh, and I'm just going to keep doing that in those areas. And then as the years go, I'm going to say, okay, now that area, you know, I've fertilized it a lot over the years. I've composted a lot in that spot. I've put a lot of nutrients into that soil. You can only do so much amendment before you start to actually just hurt the ground. And so letting it rest. That's something that a lot of us who do, you know, small scale gardening kind of forget that you can't just keep taking, taking, taking. I'm giving back. I'm constantly trying to rebuild the soil and build it stronger and healthier every year, but I have to let it rest once in a while. And so in about four years from now, maybe five, I'm going to shut that part of the garden down. I'm going to stop growing on it. I'm going to leave the perennials that are in there alone, but I'm going to stop taking care of it in the sense of putting uh, annuals in. And I'm going to let the weeds grow up. I'm going to let the garlic mustard come up. I'm going to let the grass come up. And as soon as they grow in there, I'll give that a whole season. Let that grow and establish itself. And then I'm going to move the pen for the ducks over. And in that time, that one year where I don't have any crops in that spot, I'll put them into another location. I'll clear out another acre, uh, not acre, but another part of the acreage. Uh, I always have some land that is not being grown on. And that is a, a, a good thing to have, whether that's your, you know, picnic area, your lawn area where you have barbecues, whatever it may be. And then I leave that spot alone. And then in a couple of years, that becomes the garden. And then I, in a couple of years from that, that becomes where I put the livestock. And that's kind of the cycle that we have to do. Establishing your food systems in a cycle. Because the soil needs to rest, it needs to be refertilized, it needs to be kind of walked on top of. Uh, sometimes you have too much livestock in an area and you cause a lot of soil compaction. Well, you're going to have to put some mulch down or you're going to have to grow, uh, grow plants in there that can break that soil up. Things like daikon radishes, things like um, a lot of weeds, like a lot of weeds do a good job of breaking the soil up and then you cut them all down and leave them where they were chop and drop style and those roots that are in the ground rot and they become channels back into that compacted soil for organic matter to develop and spread itself and help break that soil back up. And the opposite can happen. You can have areas that have been really, you know, dug up and used a lot and it's kind of has erosion happening. There's not a lot of growth there. Let the weeds get in there and do their work. The plants of the environment, yes, some weeds are invasive species and like, like garlic mustard and such, and we can get into that whole conversation at, at a later time. But mainly, let those weeds like, you know, your dandelions, your plantain, your uh, burdock, all that stuff get in there and do its thing for a season or two. And then you can chop that all down or send in the geese. <laughs> geese do a really, not with burdock. You don't want them eating burdock, but dandelions, garlic, mustard, clover, uh, plantain, things like that. Those geese can eat that. They're meant for eating those things. Grass, man, geese, you know, if, if, if you're looking for an animal that can do everything not everything, but do a lot for you when it comes down to establishing good soil and establishing sustainable agriculture, but also not break the bank. 
geese. Geese are almost strictly herbivorous. They will eat insects. They will eat small fish and stuff if given the chance, but they prefer greens. They prefer greens. Um, and that means as long as there's grass growing and green, you don't have to feed the geese. They can, you can supplement their diet once in a while and throw in some grit like oyster shell and such, uh, or throw in some, some duck, uh, waterfowl feed from the, uh, from the, from the co-op, but you don't have to during the growing season. They get all their nutrients, all the food that they need, all the calories they need from things like grass. And they produce eggs that are tasty, but also you can incubate or sell when they're fertilized because they only grow, geese only ray, uh, hatch eggs or lay eggs for a small window of the year. Ducks can lay hundreds of eggs in a season. Geese will lay maybe 30 to 40 in a, in a year uh, per goose. And so you can incubate those and hatch goslings and sell the goslings, or you can sell the fertilized eggs to people or to hatching facilities or to just regular people that want their own geese. And they sell for a pretty penny. So there's some finance there. There's some, there's some financial kickback. And I often argue that with animals like duck and geese, without having to slaughter them on like a sheep or a goat, although sheep also have wool and a bunch of other byproducts you can get from them that doesn't necessarily have to be slaughtered. But with when it comes down to birds, I look at geese and ducks and chickens as they kind of pay, pay for themselves in the sense that they help you either with chickens turning compost, making compost, ducks making compost, but then eggs. Those eggs can be very valuable. And chicken eggs, they sell pretty low price because everybody raises chickens and everybody has chicken farms nearby. Eggs are pretty easy to come by. But duck eggs, not so much. And goose eggs, even less. And they're a fairly rare treat for people. And so goose can be, uh, a goose or a couple of geese can be very beneficial in keeping things uh, in check in your garden. Uh, when I let the geese into the, uh, when I when I released our waterfowl into a bigger a pen from where they were for the first little bit of the season when they were young, there was garlic mustard galore. It was everywhere. It was absolutely a nightmare. Even with the wood chip, it was punching through and we were getting garlic mustard everywhere. 24 hours later, there was no garlic mustard in my, in my, in my pen or in the garden. There was no garlic mustard and it popped back up a week later and it was gone within 24 hours and it popped back up a week later and it was gone within 24 hours and then it just stopped growing because the garlic mustard seed bank hasn't been disturbed and likes disturbed soil. So whatever seeds are left under all that wood chip and biochar haven't been disturbed enough to come back. And when they do come back at some point, maybe I start planting more trees and that disturbs the soil in that spot. And those seedlings, those little uh, seeds get germinated and they pop up as new shoots of garlic mustard. The geese are going to eat them and the ducks are going to eat them. The dandelions have no chance in my coop or in my pen. And I find that really, really cool. Uh, we've had friends ask if we can bring the geese over to their place because they have garlic mustard infestations. And so that's another way that you can look at this is you can actually start, you know, renting out your birds, renting out your livestock for other places. And that gives you a chance to let areas rest. Maybe they're your geese, but your neighbor has, you know, two or three acres of garlic mustard and other weeds that they want gone. And maybe they want better fertilizer in the soil. And so they give you a chance to put your birds out to pasture for a couple of weeks on their property. And that leaves your side of your property a chance to grow back up those weeds. And then the geese come back over, they eat that too. And they just keep going back and forth, back and forth. And that's how you can try to use that, that concept of the John Seymour system. If let's say you have, uh, I think it's four, yeah, four acre, uh, four, uh, so one half for pasture, break it into fourths. 
you're not necessarily putting them all out on the full, you know, half an acre. You're putting them on an eighth of an acre. And then the next week you put them on another eighth of an acre and you close that other one down from them and they can, uh, that lets the plants in there grow back and, and re reestablish themselves. And then after a week in the new pasture, you shut that down, move them into the third pasture, this one eighth of an acre, and they do their thing in there and you let that other one rest. And by the fourth time, which is your fourth week of the month, they're in the fourth, uh, the fourth eighth, the, the last half of your acreage. And now they go back into the original one and the weeds have come back after a month. And you can just kind of cycle them and cycle them and cycle them. That could be sheep. That could be goats. I don't personally think sheep, goats, or pigs can be kept on less than half an acre very easily. Uh, and I know people do it and I, and I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying I wouldn't have a good time with it, especially where I live because of my neighbors being in so close, close proximity. If I had a lot of pigs in like an eighth of an acre for more than a week or for, yeah, especially for more than a week, man, it would get stinky fast. And the neighbors would start complaining. The, the ducks and the geese, they can already kind of make a bit of smell from their coop, which is why we do the deep litter system and we throw extra straw or bedding in every four or five or six days whenever it starts to smell and I drop the pond every time it starts to reek, even with the filter system going, that's when I usually, that's how I gauge when I do my clearing of my pond and clearing of the coop is the smell that even when I cover it with something new or it's being mitigated by the uh, filter system, if there's still an odor after it's filtered for like, let's say 24 hours, or I've put in new straw and it still has a smell, that's when I pull it all out and I throw in new bedding. That's when I drop the pond and clear it out and put fresh water in. That's, kind of the system I use. And that's how I gauge a lot of stuff is simply by smell. If I can smell it, my neighbors can definitely smell it. And I want to make sure it's clean for them. And you know, it's, it's a beautiful process. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. And you can kind of experiment. I like John Seymour's system of one eighth of the acre being left fallow for a year or more. I like the idea of three quarters or sorry, three eighths of it being used for gardens. And I like the idea of one half of it being used for pasture. Uh, I think you can change it up a little bit though. I think you can experiment like what we're doing with the, with the trees and other perennials in with the ducks and geese and outside of where the ducks and geese are and establishing more and more as we go along. Uh, in a year or two, the quarter acre homestead may grow to a half acre homestead, uh, depending on what, uh, what we decide, what I decide to do with the property. Um, we have a lot of woodlot, which is mostly black locust trees and purging buckthorn. Purging buckthorn can be very problematic. It's very challenging to remove. Locusts can be the same way. The good news of those things is you can chop and drop them. So I can take a bunch of buckthorn, I can take a bunch of locust and throw it through wood chippers and toss it all in as new wood chip. And every time those shoots come back, I chop them down and leave them on the ground. Locust, its leaves have the same nutrients as alfalfa as long as you don't feed it to horse uh, or you try to eat because there's toxins in the locust leaves. But things like goats, sheep, cows, pigs, they can eat that all the live long day. They can eat the locust leaves. The roots have similar, they're part of the legume family, just like beans and peas and such. And so they can help establish nitrifying bacteria in the soil. And that helps absorb and sequester nitrogen from the atmosphere. And so they're actually helping build your soil. And then you chop them all down and you use that for wood chip. You use that for fence posts because locust is extremely rot proof and can split fairly straight. And it's great wood to use for a lot of stuff. You can feed the tops to your sheep, goats, pigs, cattle, whatever, as long as they're not horse or you. Uh, and then you take the shoots that are coming up and you just keep chopping, dropping those or leave cusps of them or copses of them where they can start establishing soil for you to move to 
on your homestead later for your gardens because now you know you've got a decent amount of nitrogen in the soil and the roots are rotting which means they're break uh, well locust doesn't break, uh, rot very readily but the buckthorn will if you keep cutting it down the root sections will start to rot and they'll sort of break up and same thing with your box elders and a lot of other kind of what some people refer to as weed trees that get into your gardens and into your homesteads you can use that for helping build soil and so what's the problem there go with it so I would honestly say like the only thing I would change up with the John Seymour system for intensive uh, small acreage uh, holdings is I would include perennials. I would uh, severely encourage perennials, including trees. And maybe even to the point of saying like, hey, one eighth of an acre should be a woodlot that you leave with weed trees, fast growing uh, trees like buckthorn, uh, not necessarily buckthorn, but poplar is a great example. Again, locust is another good example. And then you chop those all down, all, all down, you chip them, you leave that all over the ground for the for the garden to go grow on or the ducks to walk on top of or the livestock. And I think you're set. So that's the end of the, my answer. I've been rambling for half an hour already. Uh, if you want to have your questions answered on the podcast, go over to Patreon, find the Canadian Bushcraft Patreon and subscribe to us. And any questions from any tier, we answer on the podcast. We'll see you again next week with that, uh, with our next Q and a now let's get into the actual episode of this podcast with John and Raddick. Hey folks, we are here with the Canadian Bushcraft podcast to talk about wood carving. And instead of me just sitting back and telling you what tools to use, how to do these things, how to try and explain on audio only how to make something out of wood. I figured let's actually turn this into a conversation. So I invited some good friends of mine to were able to make it luckily for us, Raddick Adolchek and John Wagger. Both these gentlemen I've known for many years and they've been wood carving. They've taught me a lot of things about wood carving. I've helped them with some projects with wood carving, vice versa. And so I wanted to bring us together to have this conversation about why do we do wood carving? What is the beauty of wood carving? Where can we go with wood carving? Where can our imagination travel? How do we learn to do wood carving? All that kind of stuff. So before I go too far into asking them a bunch of questions, I think the first question is who the hell are you guys? So Radic, who are you? Yeah, so... My name's Radic. I fancy myself a woodcarver, mm-hmm. sort of part-time or as a hobby. I'm not a professional woodcarver or anything like that. But uh, yeah, I've been carving sort of more seriously for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, I first started carving as a kid, sort of in the woods with my grandfather. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, Jadek, uh, taught me how, that's in Polish anyway. Um, he taught me how to carve just whittling sticks as sort of a craft or for fun. Yeah. Um, but uh, I sort of later in life, I got into, I was a carpenter. I worked as a carpenter for a while working mm. with wood. So I guess I've always had an affinity for wooden things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and working with wood. Um, but anyway, nowadays, sort of my profession is a restoration ecologist, but um one thing I've been thinking about sort of leading up to this conversation is like, what do I, what, you know, other than sort of the, the enjoyment of carving itself, what do I really sort of like about sort of carving generally? And it's that there's actually something sort of at the end of a project that you can look at and tangible. It's, it's tangible and it's complete. Yeah. And that's something that sort of, I really appreciated about working um, as a carpenter that sort of at the end of the day, there's this tangible sort of thing, right? The job is done. Yeah. And, uh, sort of in my new profession, my day-to-day job, like there's, 
ecological restoration, you're basically planting trees for like three generations like yeah. in the future. And so I don't actually see the fruits of my labor too often. Mm. And so it's really nice to sort of just sit down with a block of wood and just carve away with a couple of tools and axe, a couple of knives and just hammer away at that. And sort of at the end of the, you know, at the end of it, you've got a neat product that could be useful, might not be useful, whatever. <laughs> it could just be very intricate kindling in many instances, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's a little bit about me anyway. I think it's really telling though, that you're planting trees for the future to be able to carve. <laughs> like you're carving wood that we have now from our past generations and you're planting trees, literally planting trees. And those are potentially going to be carved by somebody in the future, like three, four generations down the road. They're going to take that piece of Oak or a piece of maple or birch or whatever it is that you planted. And they're gonna be like, I think I can make a spoon. <laughs> and they're gonna try and make a spoon. I think that's kind of a, a kind of a poetic thing. There's that old phrase, I think from ancient Greece of like a wise man plants trees that he will never benefit of the shade from. And that's kind of like what you're doing, but for spoon carvers. <laughs> I mean, I've never carved oak oh. uh, for a spoon. I don't think I will. I mean, maybe if I come across a nice crook or something like that, but. It's actually nice to carve when it's really, really fresh and green. I've made a few like scoops and stuff out of it. And what's cool is because it's so rich in tannin, I'll just dip it into like a vinegaroon and it turns like coal black. Wow. So I'll make these like really cool things that are finished and look like like heavy metal, like Black Sabbath kind of look to them that are just coffee scoops. Hmm. But they're, it's because of the high tannin quality of the of the oak. I've seen oak that looks really nice too with like the raisin, the mm, grain and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I haven't carved it myself either. Well, John, who are you? Uh, so then I'm John Wagger, then I'm from Curve Lake, uh, and I started carving in like 2015, I think it was. Okay. And it was at, the, the, everyone here knows Chris Gilmore, and I was mm -hmm. over at Chris Gilmore's at the, the, when they were, I don't know if he does it anymore, but it was when they were doing the Wolf Den. I don't know if Chris works with the Wolf Den anymore, but I know of the Wolf Den. A yeah. lot of people know of the Wolf Den. So I went to the Wolf Den, like I think Chris and Skeet and everyone were there. And then like uh, Chris basically told us all to like uh, carve a spoon, like to uh, use coals from the fire and like kind of like make a divot. And then everyone in the class started going at that. And I was just like, are you crazy? Like, I can't do that. And uh, so like I, I basically like I took the I think it was a Mora knife that he had. I basically looked at the piece of wood and I carved it, the Mora knife that I had into the wood, basically. I, I made a little wooden knife. I made notches around the handle. And then that sat in my room for about a year. Nice. And then that almost a year later, I was on a backpacking trip. And then like five days into it or something like that, I found this piece of driftwood and I kind of like brought it back to the fire. I burned it. And like, I just kind of remembered that like spoon stuff. And then I made my first spoon, mm. gave it away. Then I went to the Wolf Den. I think I started making a few more just because like uh, people thought it was cool and I, I was kind of interested because like I had made something. And then mm. I went to the Wolf Den again. That and then like uh, the following year with the school, and that I ended up just kind of like making another coal burnt thing. And I just kind of kept going off that. Went home, started looking up videos uh, about like, or basically I think I just typed in. I don't know how this happened, but I just know I kept. I started carving spoons. I typed in spoon carving on YouTube. I saw this thing called Spoonfest. I watched the video and I was like, whoa, like what? Like, uh, what is like this whole spoon carving thing? And, mm. uh, and like all these people were using hook knives and stuff. So then I bought myself a Mora hook knife. 
I was sitting in my basement in Lindsay with a random hatchet that I found, <laughs> uh, chopping onto a piece of pressure treated wood on the ground and just making a bunch of banging. I think I remember at one point my neighbors said, because it was a townhouse in Lindsay, and I think my neighbors started banging on the other side of their basement wall at me one time. <laughs> But then my landlord thought it was cool. Like he came there one time and he's just like, oh, like I saw the stuff you're making down there. That's awesome. But, so like I started doing that, that eventually got out of college, came to Curve Lake and then like kind of like started diving more into it, started getting more tools. And then actually then then I took a class with Max from Woodsman's Finest. Right, right. And like um, just kind of like helped me like see though it was like I was starting to get the hold the crank and stuff like that, like angles of spoons and everything. Like, I thought I was deep into it. And then I took Max's class and it's like, wow, this guy's like, uh, he breathes spoons. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> and like axes and stuff like that and sharpening. And then like that just kind of like, uh, after that, I hit the ground running. And like, I started like, it was probably within like a few months, I started like selling a few spoons or like I was giving them away to people. And then I started to just sell a few just because like I had a bunch. Right. And then I started like, I just kind of kept getting better and better. Went around to shows and stuff like that eventually started teaching mm -hmm. and then yeah that took a few years break uh, playing video games and then i came <laughs> back uh, again now right on what year did you take that course uh, with max yeah i think it was like 2016 it was about a year before you and i met so i'd say 2016 yeah yeah you and i met around early 2017 i think it was like april or may of 2017 that's not necessarily early but earlier than later um and the first time we got to hang out, I was just looking for people to help me split some cedar. I needed a couple of people to help me get some bark for a lodge I was working on. And I was going to use the wood afterwards to make some other things. And uh, a lady, a, a young lady that I knew on social media, but hadn't met in person, tagged her friend, John. Well, that first it was... Um... You were working on the wigwam at Lang Pioneer Village, and she told me like, "Hey, you got to meet." Like she kept, I think she told me about you a couple times, right? And then like I, I was just kind of like, "Oh, like he sounds pretty cool," but like I'm kind of shy. Like I don't just like usually <laughs> go out and like uh, just meet people and start talking to them. But then once I know them, like you can't get me to shut up. Yeah. But then like um, so then I went over there. I started talking to you. Then I remember like just telling you like basically like I. Cause like listening to you talk and stuff, I'm pretty sure I was just like, I knew that I wanted to hang out with you more right. and learn. And then like, you're just like, yeah, come on over. And then like, I don't know if it was a day after or something, but then we went something like out that. in the forest and then like, <laughs> we just, we just made a bunch of stuff like yeah. ricing sticks, a, a yeah. parching paddle. I showed you how to make a folded bark basket out of cedar. That, that, that made a winnowing basket. Yep, yep. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I just have a picture of a bunch of stuff. You sent me home with a crooked knife handle too. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure that the first one. And that was like the very next time I saw you, you came down with these crooked knife blades, these Mokotagan blades that you'd found yeah. in an old dilapidated shed or barn. Yeah. And you were like, so what do I do with these? And we just started messing around with them until we got them fitted into handles. And then you start playing with them more. Yeah. And then Radic and I met uh, back in 2012 at Trent University. One of our very first classes of the year was the class that me and Ryan, uh, Radic. Not Ryan. Oh my goodness. Ryan's our podcast co-star. He's not here to co-host, but he's not here today. He is a co-star though. He's just a star. But anyways, um, Radic and I were like our very first class of the year was this lecture. And it was the most depressing lecture. Like just trying to make you miserable. And it's like 830 in the morning on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is not what I want to feel sad. <laughs> and so I would go out and have a smoke at like break like right at break i'd like first guy out the door outside having a smoke be like that was way too heavy 
that was way too much. And this polite dude with a nice groomed facial hair and almost like quaffed hair at the time. It wasn't like as thick and long as you had it later, but it was not as short as you have it now. Yeah. It was like nice little kind of like rooster crest on it. You came out, lit a smoke and you're like, well, that was sad. It was like the (laughs) first time we ever talked. And by the next, by that winter, you and I were like hanging out on a regular basis up at the university here in the bush, whenever you can make your way down, whenever I can make my way up to your place in town. I think one of our very first conversations that we had, that was an in-depth conversation was when we were around a fire for a night for the elders conference. And we just talked axes for like two hours. And you're like, can you explain what you're talking about with these longer axes? Like I was, cause I was talking about like why like felling axes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I pulled out a Gransford's Brooks felling axe out of my kit. And in like the moonlight, we, yeah, were just... we were splitting wood by, <laughs> by moonlight under the stars. And you're like, I get it now. I understand why you like this axe so much. And we just kept talking theoretical concepts about axes for like two hours. And I was like, I dig this guy. And then by the next spring, we had become like soulmates when it came down to a lot of stuff. Radic is Radic and John are some of my closest friends out here. John kind of went on hiatus for a while playing his video games. I sold my computer. (laughs) (laughs) Just to get back into this. And that was great. Like as soon as I was able to get hold of John again and start having him come out to help. We, you helped me set up a wigwam a couple months back, helped me fix up the wigwam because it needed some repairs a couple weeks ago. John has been one of my like protégés since 2017. And it's always good to have these guys with me. Uh, These are some of my favorite people in the world. So when I had a chance to actually get them both in one podcast, I got really excited, really excited. Sadly, one of our other buddies who was going to join us couldn't make it. He got a little ill under the weather. Um, but we'll have him on the show on a later date. And uh, for if he's listening, Zach, we all miss you. We hope you're doing well. Feel better, buddy. So let's get into carving. Can I ask one question to you, John? Mm-hmm. What was the first spoon that you were actually stoked about? Or the first thing you carved that you were like, like wow like i did it, this it was honestly the first like uh, uh i think it was probably that knife because like um the more knife card uh, uh, yeah because like even like the notching in it like um so basically it was like it was a regular handle uh, and it was just kind of like round ish but then like i made like the, the v notches or whatever i carved that in a spiral all the way down the handle and it's like Ooh. i've never done anything like that but i think i just like put the knife into the wood and i just kind of did it i made it going mm. all the way down so I walked away from that thinking like, oh, like that's pretty cool. It sat on my windowsill for a year. But then it's like, I remember that driftwood spoon. Like at the start, I felt like because I had nothing to compare it to, which is something like I might get into later too. But it's like, um, but like Instagram is such a weird thing because it's like, yeah, say like I could carve a bunch of spoon. Like I, right now, like I feel like I'm going into this next level than I was before. And then I go over to Instagram, and it's like uh, they put me back in the in my place. <laughs> they, they, they stuff you back into a box. You're, like, You're not there yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's like, um, yeah, they, it has been this weird thing where it's like you start off, you feel like you're really good just because you made a few things, and it's like honestly, if you keep at that, one day like you will be amazing at it. But mm-hmm. it's like just because like you're not some like I'm not a professional carver, but like I. If you just because you're not some professional carver doesn't mean you can't make a beautiful item and everything. It's like that. It's like I've like spoons that I've sanded. Other people have spoons that they've sanded. Like a like basically like they hardly did any carving. It's like you sit you shape the thing by sanding. Right. <laughs> and it's like a, yeah, exactly. Shape by abrasion. It's like it still ends up as a perfectly fine thing. Like you can still love it. It can look beautiful. Have mm-hmm. nice wood and stuff. But yeah, it's like I think Instagram was when I started to realize that like. A, 
or like um, when, when I met Max and stuff like that and like YouTube videos. Uh, There's another level to it. Yeah, exactly. But it's like it also made me want to push for that because that's mm. something about myself is it's like I, I like to geek into things and get like really into them. Yeah. So it's like uh, watching Spoonfest. Uh, I think that was one of the things that made me realize. And also actually about that, it's kind of funny. Like I was watching a YouTube video about like um, there wasn't very many spoon carving YouTube videos back in 2015. It's right. like uh, like I, I knew every single one that existed back then. And the one guy I heard his radio and I heard like Kortha Downs or something. I'm like, that's a casino in Peterborough or whatever. And I was just like, wait a minute. So then like I go to the guy's website. I'm like, holy crap, this guy's in Bob Cajun. Mm. it was this other guy jeff he makes rings now mm. or ringing group or something yeah, yeah. but um that then like he had max living with him max from austria so then right. like that's how i kind of found out about that very cool i remember seeing that video because the guy was carving cooks's right like, yeah birch cups yeah exactly yeah and in the background is you hear cool yeah, i heard the same thing the and i'm like what but yeah. i think i heard, like i listened to it sort of once he was out of the game because oh, i tried yeah. to follow up and yeah, yeah. Track him down. That, yeah, Justin, he lives in Bob Cajun again still. And like he was like a, him and Max were basically just like living and breathing. And that was part of it too. Like I got to spend some time with like two people that were literally making their living with spoon carving at the time. Like and Jeff had like three kids or something. Max was like traveling like um, around the world all the time, going to Japan and stuff. He had a bunch of tools. And it's just like, wow, like these guys like i want to live the, the life these guys have like they're right. just making stuff all the time they're making beautiful things and they're really skilled at what they do mm. and it's just like I, I think i looked up to that and like the kind of like craft like say like all the axes and everything everywhere the hand tools and stuff it was just really cool totally it's such a deep world you can get yeah. into like once you go down that rabbit hole yeah you know sort of i sometimes forget that not everybody is as big of a carving nerd as I am. Yeah. So when you like sort of, whether you're on like social media and you're looking at your feed, like three quarters of the stuff are just spoons. Mm -hmm. And if you sort of relate that to other people, like most other people's content that they're consuming isn't spoons, spoons, <laughs> <laughs> three quarters of their world is just spoons. Yeah. There, and that's totally, <laughs> totally. I love that snort. Um, that's totally everybody's niche. Yeah. everybody's hobby becomes that three quarters of their social media thing mm -hmm. for me uh it's currently well for the last like year it's been blacksmithing pops up on my social media a ton mm -hmm. because i i've been doing bladesmithing and practicing more in my blade making and i it dawned on me about four months ago hey like it's cool to see other people's knives it's cool to see how they're making their tools i need to start looking more at spoons cups bowls to understand how my tools need to work Mm -hmm. And so about four months ago, I started like actively participating and looking for those spoon carving Instagram or spoon carving Facebook groups and stuff mm -hmm. so that that, get, that can become part of my fascination. And I don't carve as much as you guys do. I just don't. It, I, I, I'll get into a groove for about a week and I'll carve as much as I want during that week. And then I'm done for like six months. Mm -hmm. And that's. That's kind of funny because it's like in my mind, it's like you know how to carve more stuff than me, but it's like uh, <laughs> and uh, I carve more than you. Like yeah. I carve more often, but it's like I uh, say, like if I like I, I wouldn't like I, I didn't know I don't know the design for a snow shovel or something like that. Right. And it's just like you know how like all these different things, but it's just like you only have so much time. Yeah, I was gonna say, Caleb, you have phenomenal library, a phenomenal library of resources too, yeah. right? Like reference material, totally. which is and that's it. Like it just it's so cool like when you when we were sort of organizing this thing you posted that thing about noggins 
Yeah. The sort of, I guess that was out of a book. In, it's actually in sitting right here. here. It's uh, I got the book right here. It's a W. Ben Hunt book. Just to clarify for folks, um, a lot of these older books are not the most well-researched and will use things like the terms savage or Indian to, to try and explain native peoples. And they'll often kind of fast track stuff. So like they'll show you how to make indigenous clothing, but they're going to use like chemise or chamois leather. They're not going to go and show you how to actually tan a hide. They're just going to fast track you so you can go to your little Indian Boy Scout powwow. But in these books, you can find these little gems. And in this one, there was the breakdown of what noggins look like. And I was holding this book on just for... I'm flipping through the pages right now. Sorry for anybody hearing this. But um, because I sent this little image of a photograph of a page. And Radek was like, that's cool. I wish I could read the actual text because it's so small of a photo. So keep talking. I'm just going to flip the pages. <laughs> I was just going to sort of say that this, to contextualize it, in the ch group chat, we were wondering sort of what defines a noggin and what sort of defines a cup and what defines sort of a... Cooksa. You know, a cooksa or sort of... I guess the, essentially they're all just vessels. Yeah. Right? But it's like it's people's traditional vessels too that yeah. we're, like we're trying to copy. So it's like we're trying to be like a, really pay attention to it and stuff. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say copy. It's definitely a word you can use for it. Well, and yeah. I would say like emulate. Yeah, re re recreate. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. copying would be like like that this feast bowl that I carved over the last couple of weeks. There is no feast bowl in any of these books that looks like this. Mm -hmm. I, I chose my own style. I chose my own cuts. I made it look the way I wanted it to look. But I'm emulating and kind of trying to like pay homage to the ones I've seen. Yeah. So it's still my cup that our bowl that I carved. I'm not trying mm -hmm. to just outright appropriate someone else's feast bowl or cup or spoon or whatever it may be. I wouldn't want to just go and start making a bunch of spoons that look identical to your spoons, but I yeah. can sure as hell get inspired by your spoons but, to make a spoon that I like. There's a whole thing about that in the carving totally, too, where totally. it's like, I, like say that ax that I made you, like yep. a little spreader, like um, rise up and carve is this thing where like they like put out templates for people and like mm. you, you go and like someone puts the template out, everyone does it and like carves it. But then it's like a lot of those people like to go over and like say like they'll follow someone like Max and it's like Max wants you to give credit if you're using like his designs because it's like he takes a lot of time, he thinks about them, he gives them names and totally, stuff like that. Totally. And it's like, uh, yeah, like people like say like when you make music, it's like it's your property. So it's like a lot of people are like that with their designs. Well, it's mm -hmm. intellectual property at the end of the day. Yeah. And there's that step beyond of cultural intellectual property or material culture uh, property where Ojibwe style. We were having this talk earlier when you're checking out a snow shovel I car for my kid. You're like, so is there an Ojibwe? What does the Ojibwe style look like? I'm like they're pretty much the same. There are going to be some variances, though. And that's a really culturally aware question to ask. Okay, well, this is a Cree style one. What does an Ojibwe style one look like? Because I'm Ojibwe. And also, like, say, like they lived in different places exactly. and stuff like that. Like, uh, they, they believed in different things. Like, totally. sometimes, not all the time. Like, yeah. there, like there was like just little subtle differences, and like also difference in material and stuff where you mm -hmm. live. Like, there's just like so much. <coughs> Can totally. I ask what that shovel's? Oh, you said yellow birch. That's yellow birch. Wien is it? Yeah, yellow mm -hmm. birch. And that's just because that's what I had available. Um, they're made of pretty much any kind of hardwood you can get your hands on, especially up in James Bay Cree territory. Um, you may not have a lot of dense, solid hickory and oak to work with up there. So you're going to, but you're going to have birch. Mm -hmm. You're going to have uh, black spruce that might have good internal structure in the inside radius of it bending out of the ground or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. That gives you enough tough enough wood that's not going to break when you hit some ice when you're trying to dig some snow. 
-hmm. And that's what it is. It's just a, it's just a snow shovel. It's, as I said, when I first car, I was carving it live on Facebook and somebody was asking me like, what template are you going by? And I was like, it's a big spoon. <laughs> it's just a really large spoon that kind of looks like a canoe paddle. Mm -hmm. And that's really what you're kind of going after. Um, and that's like, that's been my background of carving. I never was a spoon carver. I was never a bowl carver. I had to just make things because I needed things. I needed a new axe handle because I broke my other damn axe handle again. I needed um, a spoon because I forgot to bring a spoon with me when I was camping. And so that's where kind of my general knowledge, like, and buying all these books and collecting all these books and going through everything from like indigenous ethnographies to archaeological texts to cooking manuals and camping manuals and survival texts. Mm -hmm. It was just me being like, okay, I need to make things and I don't know how to make those things. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to keep getting those books and reading other things and going and talking to people and meeting people like John and Raddick to try and glean whatever I can. So I can carve a lot of different things, but like this, holding this axe spreader. So this is a, a, a butter or peanut butter spreader that John carved that looks just like a nice, like Baltimore Jersey pattern axe, maybe with a little bit of a Michigan pattern flare on the toe of it. And then these beautiful like figure carving and chip carving that he's put into it, including a little red squirrel, two dragonflies, because I'm guessing that was for me, yeah. yeah. And then a heron, because that's my clan. This is gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And I would never do this. <laughs> I, like I would make an, I would carve a wooden axe and it would be a straight handle and it would be a triangle trapezoid shaped head. You've put so much thought and dedication into making this thing symmetrical and like detailed and pretty. Whereas I would just make like an ax out of wood to give to the kid and be like, here you go, go chop some stuff. <laughs> this is, this is the level of carving that I don't go to. And so I have a lot of respect for and admiration for you for that. And that whole thing is like a pretty funny too. Cause it's like, um, say like, uh, when you specialize so heavily in something, it's like, say like I can scroll through my Instagram feed and it's like, a. Uh, I like to uh, just like so someone doesn't think I'm picking on people. It's mm. like uh, when you see someone, it's like uh, they're not worse than you. They're uh, they're like um, not as far along in their journey. Yeah. Like I, I love hearing that because it's just like, yeah, like when I was looking at people before, it's like I didn't think I could ever get there. But now that I'm like uh, more like uh, towards further where I want to go. Yeah, I'm further down the road. Now I look back and I'm like, I remember <laughs> when I was there and like I there's just like all these little parts of spoons that you see. And it's basically the about oh, I lost it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's okay you well you're can... saying you're further down the road and you're not as far back on the road as you were starting and yeah. so you're you're getting to a different point and this this is like a this is oh, tantamount to what you've been working i remember on. what it is it, it's that your own mind can pick up every little imperfection in something so yeah. once you dive so deeply into something it's like when that if i started and i made that i would think i was a, like a complete like a the out of this world person at carving and now it's like i look at it and it's like i, I could point out any little like that part that's wrong with it and, like that. everything that i want to fix like a chip carving that didn't come out perfectly uh, all that kind of stuff that makes sense yeah and i just wanted to sort of say i i i, I think i still have the one of the first spoons i ever carved right and it was also a burnt like sort of using embers to like coals to burn out the bowl mm. and i i remember i think it was two years ago when we were sort of moving um becky pulled it out and was like you know she was about to pack it into sort of our belongings that we were as we were getting ready to move and i'm like 
can we just get rid of that? And she's like, no, why would we get rid of it? I'm like, cause it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but I look yeah. back at it and it's actually kind of cool. I mean, I think it was like a basswood branch or something that mm. I carved it out of. And, but the top is really cool. Cause like it was, a, it's a, it's a turtle, like finial, mm. but I sort of never, I don't know that I, it was a lot of times my carving is like inspired by other people's ideas, you yeah. know? Um, but that was just sort of totally free form and i'd like to try and explore that again and i'm glad that we didn't get you know i sort yeah. of listened to my better half and didn't get rid of it the, <laughs> shout the, out to you becky was that split wood or was that a full branch because that's it how i full branch that's what yeah. i when i first started too i was always doing that and i didn't really understand like the way it would work and stuff like that mm -hmm. so the more you got into it it was like oh like why does this keep cracking when i get to the bottom where it's like it's green and you're drying it out unevenly as you blow mm -hmm. the coal down it's like oh why is this cracking yeah yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the coal bowls is like a great way to sort of introduce people to, you know. It's a fast and simple way, especially when like you consider how much does a spoon knife cost? Like a, a proper hook knife that's going to do a pretty decent job. And if you've got to have like, like most people when they get into bowl carving or uh, uh, coal burning a bowl or cup or spoon, it's not usually them sitting there being like, I wonder if I can take a coal and put it on this piece of wood and hollow it with it. It's usually because someone showed them and that's usually in like a class setting. Mm -hmm. And as a teacher who teaches outdoor ed and bush skills, it is really hard to arm everybody with the right tool and then have to keep up on it. Making everybody coal burn stuff is a lot more affordable and easier to teach with at the beginning. And safer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I did that with Liability a group of Girl Scouts. Thing. Sorry, go ahead. I, I did that with a group of Girl Scouts, that exact thing. Mm -hmm. And it was like, and basically like everyone was just like and over the moon. I They their coal would go out or they drop it on the ground. They come over to me. I'd put a new coal on top of their piece of wood and like, they loved it. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, they, they were fine with carving with the knives after too, but it's like the hook knife is like the most dangerous part of carving, especially when you're using like a, well, especially the old Mora 164s before they updated them. I mm -hmm. think they're a bit better now, but like the, the edges are a little bit more refined. So yeah. Less wanting to bounce out and fly and at you. There isn't like that, like um <coughs> point on it. That, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, uh, so like all my old carving knives are those. And it's like, I still have to go through and sharpen them up to like a better edge, but it's just like, those aren't the best for learning. And it's like, I remember when I started, I was like holding like thumb up, but like trying to carve with it just cause it was so hard to remove wood. And it's like, I could have had so many injuries. Luckily mm -hmm. I didn't, but it's like, when you first start carving with some of those hook knives, you do really dangerous stuff. And you, yeah. And the knives in general, you don't realize that it's like the knife is sticking to the wood, but then once it comes out of the wood, where's it going to go? How much mm -hmm. force are you putting into it? And it's just like, and you your, have to, your four S's of safety, sharp, stable, slow, and safe follow through. And, and where do mm -hmm. people usually carve on their lap? Like if yep. you're sitting there carving a spoon for your first time, you're not going to be holding it up by like in front of your face or something, trying to carve the bowl. It's going to be sitting on your leg, probably right by your giant artery, right in the middle. And you're just <laughs> yep. going to be carving this hook knife back towards <laughs> yourself, but scraping it against the wood, catching, and then just coming free really quickly. Yeah. Well, it was like a mutual friend of ours back in 2017, 2018 era, circa 2017, 2018. He was hanging out with me down by the point near the gas station here in Iowa, and we were just whittling while the kids were playing. The kids were at the playground and we were just carving. And he was holding the spoon in reverse of the spoon's bowl was facing him and the tip of the spoon's handle was facing his index finger. And he had a spoon knife in there, a hook knife, and he gouged into it just like we all do and cranked into it and it popped out and it cut open his wrist like an eighth of an inch to maybe a quarter inch from his artery and it gouged like it tore a giant chunk of meat that was a quarter inch thick 
out of his wrist and like start bleeding immediately. We had to go right into first aid mode. I was scared that he cut an artery, but it wasn't spurting or spraying. Mm -hmm. So he was good that way. He had a Quebec health card. So that made things complicated when we got to the hospital. Cause even though we have universal health care in Canada, it's province by province by province. So things can get kind of complicated if you go to the hospital. That's the exact thing that I'm talking about. It's like, say like the motion you even did as you're doing it, it's like almost like you're carving with a crooked knife, but you're not. It's yeah. like a, the, you're carving with a spoon knife. And it's like the way I realize it's like, I never, I don't ever like carve towards myself, especially like with a <coughs> knife like that anymore. It's like the yeah. way I do it. It's like, it's almost the same way. Like you were holding it there. I have it in my hand. Like sometimes like I have a bunch of different ways I hold it, but it's like, my body's all locked together when I do it now, mm -hmm. like elbows locked against my side. And when I'm pulling the, it's like, I'm not even like pulling the knife towards me really. I'm like, I'm more so pushing it with my other hand. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, and when it comes out, it's like the amount of pressure that's there. It's like, it's all controlled by me. And it's like, yeah. The, controllable. Yeah. It's controllable. And it's like, it's small amounts of movement. And you wouldn't know that the first time you use a tool. Yeah, exactly. Like, you don't you really have know to it learn it through experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like, I mean, how, do you have, I've count, I've cut myself countless times, you know? But I cut myself <laughs> the other day. So this was a new one because I don't work with cedar very much. And I, um, I went to cut the end of a rib or something. And like, I, I, like I was telling Caleb about this earlier, like I was kind of like, uh, I was angry at the time, right? Like I had just broken like eight canoe ribs in a row, like after carving them for however long, making them all nice and stuff like that. And then, like, I crack a bunch of them, so I go over, I'm, like, I kind of, like, aggressively starting to carve more, and, like, I just, like, pull back towards my hand, and the piece of wood snapped instead of cutting, which is what I'm used to, right? Like, I was, uh, in my mind, like, I'm going to pull it, I'm going to do, like, the potato, like, kind of grip or whatever. Like, right, right, pairing. Yeah, pairing. Uh, I'm going to uh, close my hand, the blade's going to come on an angle and cut up uh, the grain, and instead what it did was it just went straight through and went towards my thumb. Mm. and it's like it's not like a giant cut or anything and it's like if i was using a different blade like my normal one it probably wouldn't have even cut because just because like uh, how sharp it is but it's just like yeah it's interesting it's like and it's something i didn't think of and it's like i'm almost always like kind of like in my mind like oh like if i do this what's gonna happen it's mm -hmm. like that's one of like my cuts that i almost don't even think about but it's like in that moment when i was working with something so thin the fact that it snapped i realized is what did like it was what ended up cutting me yeah it made things not predictable and that's the reality is like we teach when we do bushcraft because Radic's been one of our staffs since like 2013, 2014. Yeah, pretty much a year after we met. Yeah, pretty yep. much. And uh, Radic can verify this. When we do courses, like we remind people, like if you're doing knife work, have a first aid kit with you, like across the board, because you can know all of the safety features. You can know all of the rules. You can follow every single rule, and there can still be a variable that you can't control. The wood cracking when you're not expecting yeah, it to crack. Yeah, exactly. And that could happen when you're carving a bowl and <clears throat> the spoon, too. Yep. Like, I've seen people that, like, say they're, 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 like, kind of carving down the front of the bowl and holding it. And then, like, they've got their bowl so thin and delicate, and, like, like the mm -hmm. bowl just kind of, like, snaps in their hand. And then, like, unless they're, yeah, unless they're thinking about that while they're doing it, which is something that I actually do while I'm doing a spoon, because I've had that happen before. And thankfully, I didn't cut myself. Yeah. It's like, and yeah, like you have to be thinking about that stuff. Like if the wood gives, what happens? Yeah. There was a friend of mine, uh, still a good friend of mine. It's not like we don't talk anymore. Um, down in Arizona. And he did a lot of bushcraft videos from the desert in uh, Prescott, Arizona area. And, or Mayor, in Mayor, Arizona. <clears throat> and he was getting ready just to split a piece of wood in between takes with his knife and a baton. And he set the knife into the piece of wood as everybody does. A little thunk, just, you know. Okay. 
into the piece of wood. Didn't realize that there was a core rot and a split already in the wood and severed his index finger to the bone, past the bone. It was severed. It was held on by a tendon and a piece of skin. He cut his index finger completely off almost. We called him nearly nubby for years. Um, and he didn't tell me. He didn't tell any of our friends what happened. And this was after a two-week window where he had cut himself on two occasions when doing videos. And we kept teasing him like, hey, it comes in threes, dude. Be careful with that third one. We didn't hear from him for two or three days. And then he puts up a video quietly on, on the internet. And the beginning of the video is him driving like a bat out of hell down a back road pale as a ghost and the camera's just up on the dashboard as he's driving and trying to control the, uh, the truck with his one hand and he goes uh i did something stupid i cut my effing finger off and we're like all of us were watching he just quietly sent the video to us on social media and we're all like watching it together and every single one of us, our hand is just slowly going over our mouth in horror of what we're seeing of our friend nearly taking a finger off because he was just setting it into a block of wood a knife mm -hmm. and it was just a regular k-bar usmc style combat survival knife tactical knife it wasn't a machete it wasn't a giant axe it was a, a seven inch k-bar knife or six and a half inch or whatever length they are and it cut his index finger off he had it held on by a tendon and a piece of skin. That's crazy. We've only talked about knives so far too, but it's like me erratic. Like some people, some spoon carvers don't use axes, but like we both use carving axes that are like usually mm -hmm. shaving sharp. And it's like if, if you if you hit your finger with that, it's your finger's gone. gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like uh, there's no mess ups with an axe. Like there, there's been a few times where like say like um the wood is like falling in my fingers and stuff, but it's like I have like calluses on my fingers and I've realized what they were from. Like some of them, it's like. It's from holding down the piece of wood on the chopping as block. As tightly as you like, can. Like, I have a big so uh, callus right there. And it's, like, it's because it's the spot that I pushed down against the wood to get it onto the chopping block. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, yeah, that's something else you have to be aware of. Like, if something slips on the chopping block in the middle of you downstroking, like, a, the, your hand could fall where yep. that piece of wood is. And then you could uh, cut your finger off. It's, like, there's yeah. so and much like you got to be aware of. And you got to think about that. Like, you're pushing down to hold that piece on. If that piece slips, your hand goes down. Exactly. So you have to have, like, this weird, like, cat light reflex of, like, I have to push down but be ready to pull away it, if it slips. There's so What's many that? times where I've been, like, ooh, that was a close call. Yep. Yeah. That, Especially with the axe. Because, like, with the Sloyd knife or you know, um, or a hook knife, like the, sure, you can sort of gouge your hand or something sure. like that, which is horrible. But like what the repercussions of uh, an accident with an axe can be sort of significantly Like skin grows back, bones and digits don't. Uh, I just had a good thought <clears throat> of it. Like um, the, the knife techniques that have been developed for saying like a, for using like a Mora 106, it's like there's a, those are all designed in ways that you can't really cut yourself yeah, but it's like if you're doing them right yeah, yeah. exactly but it's like uh, with an axe it's like even those like professional guys with an axe like you, you look at willie sunbest or whatever like his old videos with country workshops it's like you, you think the guy's gonna like put an axe in his little tiny leg like uh, <laughs> uh it, it doesn't like oh the and couple weeks ago sorry go ahead go ahead okay i was gonna say that uh, no this is actually a couple months ago somebody videotaped me car or videotaped me recorded me carving and sort of the, uh, I shared this post on social media and the comment was like, yo, watch your fingers. You know, I'm like, this is every day. There's never a time that I don't hold the wood like this. Cause if you're carving small things with an ax, you know, if you're shaping wood, roughing out spoons, bowls, cups, what have you, or little figures, you're going to um, get cut. You're going to get cut. And I mean, that's where your fingers have to be. 
You know, there's no way to hold a thin piece of wood. It's really, you just have to trust yourself. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that trust comes with experience. It's not like the first time I grabbed a piece of wood, I was just like swinging. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing, I'm picturing Super Mario in, in, in uh, Mario racing. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> swinging like a maniac. You know, we also haven't talked about though. It's like a sharp knife. Like I, I remember learning about that. Like, uh, so for so long, like say, like I was saying like the Mario uh, 164 when like back in the day, it was like, it was, it was dull. So it's like I was using so much pressure in those bad well, ways mm -hmm. to try and cut. And it's like a, it may be dull for wood, but it's not going to be dull on my skin. Nope. The, so it's like a, a dull knife. You have to use more force and it's less controllable, mm -hmm. the, which means like, it's more likely to fly out. And when it flies out, it's going to make a ragged tear cut when it hits what it hits. Yeah. Like I've been cut by some of the sharpest knives I've ever held in my life. And you can kind of pinch the skin back together. But also, it doesn't seem to dive as deep. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't seem to tear as bad or cut as bad. And you can kind of just hold the skin together for, like, a slow count of, of 60 or 100 and then let go and the blood stopped. It's and the skin's almost knitting back together already. It's almost like a laser yeah. edge. Mm -hmm. I uh, Like, a lot of people laugh when they cut themselves with, like, a sharp knife, yeah. like a Mara 106, because it's just like, oh, like... Uh, you just kind of like feel like this little tiny thing on your hand. And you're like, oh, like I just cut myself. Like, yep. uh, yeah, it's not so a cut, sharp. it's an incision. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Whereas if you take something that's like a ragged edge tool that's been beat to crap and you cut yourself with it, it's not cutting through you. It's tearing through you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard to get that skin back in line and to make it just stop bleeding. <laughs> just please stop bleeding so I can get the bandaging on and get home or get to the hospital. The worst is those 106s, the tips. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of just diving into your flesh. And even if it's like a millimeter or two millimeters, it goes in like nothing, but it, and it, you can barely feel it. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're like, oh, yeah, there's blood on my carving, you know, the no. thing I'm carving. I wonder where that's from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And they, it's, they're like a shank. They go in so they're like a sewing needle. They just go right into you and come right back out. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that's that that's a chunk. That like that's not just a slice. That's a con, like a contusion. Like it's <laughs> it's impaled me, and now it's just bleeding because it's gone deep. Yeah, I I impaled my chest once with. <laughs> <laughs> Moore's way back was telling me this story. This like 2011, talking about like if you know how to use a knife, and you know how to hold it properly. You can carve towards yourself all day long. You're not going to get cut because you know how to control it. <clears throat> and he was teaching these kids, and this must have been back in the 70s or the 80s. He was teaching all these kids. Uh, they were set up camp. There was a girl camp and a boy camp, so there wasn't going to be anything, any funny business going on. And it was a summer. It was a school group. And they gave them all a block of wood. Each of them got a block of wood and a mora knife. And later that day, they were going to learn how to carve uh, netting needles and stuff like that out of that block of wood. And as the day went for like an hour or two, as the kids were sort of setting up their camps and getting set situated, he kept hearing like these shrieks and then laughter and then shrieks and then laughter and then shrieks and dead silence. And then a, a, a youth comes over to the group of teachers and adults and is like such and such stabbed himself in the chest. And what had been happening was this kid had the board of wood under his shirt and was running up to the girls camps with his knife and stabbing himself in the chest and stopping with the knife or with the wood. 
and then the wood shifted and he drove it in along the grain and split the board in half and went right into his the, sternum. The, 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 literally the <clears> first <throat> time you said of him stabbing himself, in my mind, just like when, once you know how wood works, you're just like, the, you just picture that it's splitting right through the grain <laughs> and going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can like almost like Sherlock Holmes it of like watching in your mind how it's going in and penetrating and it stopped in the sternum. Like he was lucky he didn't slip between two ribs and get his heart or his lungs. But it stuck out of his out of his rib cage, basically, and he was panicking and like pale and scared and terrified. Obviously, you just stabbed yourself. Mm-hmm. But because of all the shrieking and laughter of the, it was like a boy cry, cried wolf kind of thing. Nobody knew what to do in the situation because they thought he'd been stabbing himself this whole time, mm-hmm. and suddenly he wasn't acting himself. So yeah, <laughs> just flat out, do not uh, pointed things should not fa- point at your body. Yeah, don't right? stab yourself in the chest. Moral of the story: Don't try to scare people with your knife. <laughs> uh, flat out, don't try to scare people with your knife. People... I wasn't. I wasn't trying to scare. Oh no 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 no! no. <laughs> just, I'm just saying, like in general, people people will try to mess with you and be like they'll flip their knife around and try and do knife tricks. Don't do that. Don't uh, fool around with your tools. Like I'm I'm terrible for that. Where I'll have like a knife or an axe and I'll start flipping it on my finger. And getting like just kind of goofing with it, and I have cut myself so many times from doing that. And apparently, I haven't learned my lesson yet. See, I would, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do that because it's like I can't even watch it. And like I was watching this YouTube video of someone making a canoe recently, and they pulled out a mora, and it's like I had to turn the video off because I was like, there was parts of me inside that were like screaming while watching someone like just like kind of put a mora into wood and twist it and stuff, and I hear like the edge snapping. And I'm just like, ah, <laughs> like. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, like I, like I tools touch them together. It's like I'm so like conscious about my tools. Like everything in my toolbox, like there's a piece of leather at least, like yeah. between oh, yeah. them. Protect and your like edge. Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's like I I don't play with my tools at all. And it's like uh, the only time like if something's like getting put out on the table and not back in a sheet, it's because it's like I'm like right in the middle of like my kind of flow. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But like uh, uh, something about stabbing yourself too. Like you guys mentioned the point. It's like. When you put one of those points of the moras in your thumb, it's like you feel that. It's like a, you for days. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's sensitive for days when you put pressure on it. Because you didn't just slice it. Like if you nick that with a with a straight edge, it sucks for a couple hours to a day, maybe, and then maybe later as it dries up, it becomes irritating because it's getting caught caught on stuff. But when you punch a hole into your thumb, oh, <laughs> it's it just hurts. Needles, like when yeah. you're sewing too. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, yeah. There's there's so many things to be said on that, and of course, safety has to come first, second, third. We're we're getting late. We don't want to have this episode go too too long because John's got to get heading out in a little bit, and we've got a lot of other content in this one episode that we want to make sure gets covered. So I think the next question we have now that we understand like why we all love carving and what kind of gets us into it. Now we've talked safety, which is a great thing to talk yeah. about on this. What are your tips for people to get into this? Like, hopefully someone gets inspired by this episode. That's my hope, is at least one person's like, I want to try this stuff out. What are some tips you have for them? Like, you can go tool, you can go material, you can go technique, whatever tips you want to give for them. I was going to say, take a course with John. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. Running, are you running courses again? Are uh, you thinking about it? Well, it's like, um, I don't, like, I could be running the Micah Ming right now, but yeah, it's like, um, I was going to post something too. It's like, it's this weird thing though, because it's like, there's so many places that you can learn for free and it's like, I'd like to teach people for free all the time, but it's like at the same time, it's like I have to be carving my own spoons and uh, progressing myself. So it's yeah. like if someone did want to take a course with me, like, yeah, you could reach out. But it's like there's so much like resources online now. It's like when I first started carving, it's like um, this is, uh, Zed Outdoors. 
Like he had this like two that, different videos. Zed's content, Zed's Zed's YouTube channel is phenomenal. He's professional, super professional, and that's who like the Spoonfest videos I saw, like the 2016 Spoonfest. Mm. It's like, and this guy has covered over since that time because like he just realized that like uh, he kind of made a video that at the time when everyone was starting to get into it, like 2015. That's when spoon carving started taking off. Right, like right. I, I remember when, when there wasn't a wait list to, to buy from Nick Westerman kind of stuff. Like uh, it wasn't a two year waiting. They, they, I remember when they're just like there wasn't a wait list. It was just like you like, just here's got, twenty blades, buy one. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Then and it's like stuff like that, or like least offers scores before they were like five hundred dollars and stuff ben like Orford that. And, they, yeah. yeah, like uh, that when you back when you could get a hold of people's tools. Like I, I got a Reed Schwartz knife now, and like for a while, like there was like a people, a bunch of people, like you just couldn't even get one just because it's like it. You only took like private orders for a while and then stopped, and it's just like. But yeah, like there's uh, at this point, like back in the day, I would have said like, oh, like Robin was blog and like I would have said like a bunch of really niche spots. Now I just say like you can grab the, the, the book from Barn the Spoon called Spawn. You can grab Swedish carving techniques. You can grab uh, um, Whittling in Wood from Nicholas Carlson. You can grab Celebrating Birch from North House Folk School. That's just like a whole bunch of different crafts and spoon carving is covered in there. And any of those books that combined with that, like those YouTube videos that you can see online, which is like so many different people and like their processes on how they carve and everyone carves spoons a little bit different. Like some right. people like that they, they use smaller axes and more techniques. Some people are just smaller built people. So they just use smaller tools mm -hmm. and it's just like <clears throat> saw or no saw. Yeah, exactly. Saw yeah, and no yeah. saw like barn, like a sandpaper, no sandpaper. Yeah, yeah exactly. Barn's yeah. videos are stellar. Like his silent spoon carving series yeah, exactly. because he doesn't draw anything it's like he's got the he's got it in his mind yeah and just sort of brings it to life and bringing he's, the spirit one, of the he's one of the yeah. only people i like i've just ever <clears throat> seen carve that does that too because it's like there's the there's like a special kind of like thing in there like most people like they draw templates and stuff and like that's that's the thing about zed's channel too it's like um you see all these different things and like zed that says the only channel i mentioned so far because he has like maybe eight the different videos with different carvers about how they carve their spoons mm. and they're like two hour long videos like entire process he's shooting with like high-tech cameras he's yeah, super yeah. professional about it yeah i was gonna say beyond even spoon carving like he's got videos on making like carving benches right um pole lathe yeah like, sort of yeah, yeah, tr yeah making treadle lathes um sharpening sharpening like he's yeah. like the just beyond just like carving spoons, any sort of treen or wood culture thing, mm. that channel's got it available. Oh. And the, the, which I should also mention, it's like, yeah, you probably want to get a book that touches on sharpening too. Cause yeah. it's like, um, if you don't know how to sharpen your tools, it's like, you can get a Mora that's sharp, but it's like, uh, well, once it goes away, it's like, uh, and you don't know how to sharpen something. It's like, uh, I'm sure you get, I feel like there's people out there that keep buying knives, but it's like, <laughs> That if you like, and that, like, that's also like being able to chase that good finish. Like, that's something I didn't realize at first, too. It's like, I just had an extremely dull knife and I was looking at these people online, like, oh, how can I eventually get a knife finish? And it's like, they, you need to know how to sharpen it. Like, your knife should be sharp, but you can't be like scraping the wood basically with a dull blade. I, I remember a conversation when I showed you uh, a, a, a noggin, a cup, uh, Nishnabek style noggin that my buddy Nick made me. And you're like, like, what kind of grid of sandpaper did he finish on? Like, he didn't sand it. And you're like, bullshit. You <laughs> called me out right there like, bullshit. I don't believe you. And I was like, it's 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 just really sharp knife. And then he burnishes it with a piece of antler and glass at the end. And you're like, 
nope, has to use sandpaper. And I was uh, like, that that's not what he did. Sorry, man. And then you looked at it closer a couple months later, and you're like, holy crap, I can see the knife. I can see the tool marks. I can see where he scraped here. I can see where the knife kind of gouged in this. Spot. I think that was the very start of my carving, too, because it's like I do burnish more often now, but a lot of the times I actually... So I was burnishing everything for a bit. And now I stepped back away from it because mm -hmm. I realized it like um, in the style of spit, like there's all these different stuff you can do with spoons. Like right now, my big thing is facets. So it's like mm. basically the bottom of the spoon having like five facets that go to the bowl all the way back to the tip of the handle and like they're flowing completely. So yeah, it's yeah. like trying to mess Fluid with like, yeah, exactly. But so burnishing like, mucks that up. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's all, it's about your eyes catching those sharp corners. And then if you burnish it, it blends them together and it ruins it. Right. So it's like, that's something that I've realized too. For those who are wondering what the hell's burnishing, burnishing is taking a hard object that is smooth and basically pushing it along the grain of the wood to finish it at a small high gloss. And this can be done with everything from actual like professionally made burnishing tools to denser hardwood like ebony or teak all the way to antler glass uh the one that i have sitting on the workbench not the bench but the little side table beside radic is a piece of walrus tusk that i pur purposely cut for this reason so yeah the burnishing is a beautiful process to make things that are uh functional really really smooth things like snow snakes that you want to keep as slippy and slidey as possible to go across the ice axe handles where you don't want to have any hard surface or sharp edge that's going to start to abrade at you um knife and tool handles i love to burnish those to get them as smooth as possible and get rid of any facets but in some cases you want those facets and that's where this thing's gonna become like an iron on an ironing board and polish it all away on you <laughs> i was gonna say <clears throat> uh, with all my carving tools i prefer facets really because i can just get a better grip Fair, fair, yeah. fair. And, yeah, and, it sits in my hand better. And designs about that too, like handles, designs, and stuff like that with mm -hmm. facets. But it's like uh, I feel like I should finish off that one question. So Sorry. it's like, um, well, that but no, I brought myself off. That. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, um, so you should uh, a good idea, like, uh, is to get a book, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's like, um, hey, you want to uh, if you want to get into carving, it's like you want a moral one hundred six, and then it's like for hook knife, uh, it's harder recommend the moras because i haven't used the new ones they're not but, that great yeah i'd get one from robin wood that like wood tools and he's in the uk or like if you have someone local to you that makes the uh, blades like say like i remember when i first wanted an axe uh, like um max was like uh, oh don't buy an axe uh, like you don't need a uh, hans carlson or whatever get one from the toronto blacksmith in toronto and i was like oh yeah that makes sense yeah uh, so that you can get some tools that uh, like they're cheap tools the, the hook knife's a bit more expensive, mm -hmm. and, but it like you can show it to a course without one. But like a Mora 106 is a good place to start. Start whittling wood. So a book, uh, ideally, if it has something on sharpening. But then go on YouTube, watch a ton of YouTube videos, and just explore that. And then you can also take classes with people in person. There's so many spoon carvers around the world now. If you look it up, yeah, you're gonna find someone that carves spoons. I was gonna add too. I mean, like. If you don't want to invest in a hook knife, there are spoon gouges. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and that's they can sort be of an, cheap. Yeah, they can be pretty affordable. And um, like I sort of more recently got a gouge for bowl carving mm. because mm -hmm. just to like hog out some material in a hurry, yeah. like a gouge is phenomenal. And I mean, some of like Willie, like some some of the older, um, you know, and in in sort of like Russia. Um, 
in like Finland, a lot mm-hmm. of people were just using bowl gouges yep. to rough and, out. And have you seen how they do that too? Like how they do it on like their lap. So like, that's something I was going to mention also to that. It's like, hey, if you're going to use a gouge like the So I recommend hook knives usually just because like there's more videos on people using those, but right. it's like, there is really good and safe ways to use gouges, but it's like, I feel like there's more easier ways to hurt yourself using a gouge as well. Maybe but if you don't I know think how to so. use it. I think, I think that always comes back down to like the tool and your experience with that tool and your mindset. Like my favorite video clip I've ever seen in my life to help me understand that concept was <clears throat> an episode of world of survival with rain mirrors when he went to mm-hmm. Arnhem land in Australia. And there's a scene where one of the indigenous men in Arnhem land is going to demonstrate how to do a hand drill fire. Mm-hmm. And so he starts carving the notch for his hand drills baseboard with an old school butcher knife. Like the ones that I like to carry when we're camping the, the Sheffield style or the uh, uh, green river style butcher knives that have kind of a hump on the spine and all that. And he's carving with it. And first off he's holding it like you would hold a stone flake. He wasn't actually grasping the handle. He was grasping the spine of the knife like you would hold the edge of a, uh, the, the spine of a stone blade. But then he was carving on the instep of the arch of his foot. He had that as an anvil sitting on the ground and carving into that. And I was 14 years old when I first witnessed that scene. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's going to cut himself to the bone. And he never did. And I'm watching him realizing that it was only 300 plus years ago that steel came into indigenous culture in that region that they culturally still some, I'm not going to, I don't want to make it pan indigenous or claim that everybody there paint them with the same brush, but a lot of those older folks still remember 50 years ago or 80 years ago using stone blades. And that's how their hands work with that tool. So if you're Mm -hmm. from places like uh, Belarus, Eastern Europe, Russia, it makes sense that you're going to be using gouges because that's culturally what you guys have in those regions. And therefore you're going to know how to use it better. You think about how many people have tried to put together crooked knives without having cultural understanding of how a crooked knife works and how many crooked knives you go on Instagram. And I'm not trying to throw any shade at any one person on Instagram that has crooked knives on their Instagram. But if you type in hashtag Mokatagan or hashtag crooked knife, you'll start screaming within the first five minutes of scrolling. Guaranteed if you grew up around crooked knives because yeah. they just don't work. They, like Their I, tools just don't work. They, and some of them have like uh, more things right than others. But it's mm-hmm. like some of them is just like every little thing's wrong. And it's just like it's called the crooked knife anyways. But like yeah. uh, that thing you mentioned <laughs> about the legs, uh, like um, I think it was North House or something. But they had a video about this um, this spoon cover from Japan. And like he basically did it instead of using an axe, he used like a giant machete for, for like the mm-hmm. uh, to cleaving get it all out. yeah cleaving out all the wood. And it was mostly that like it was a big heavy blade. He'd slam it into the wood. Small wrist flick splits off almost like a fro. Uh, yeah, so and like it, and he was making ladles. That's what it was. And then like um when he was doing the hollowing, he had it down it in between. He also had a big piece of wood on his chest for when like he was doing kind of stuff towards himself. Right, but right. then he had like um he locked the bowl of the ladle between his feet. And he had like a handle on both sides and it was just kind of like a big kind of like in shape thing, but it was kind right, of like right. flimsy. So like he just started shaving it in with that. And it's just like, yeah, like the way people like use their bodies and stuff. And then like, I know Reed Schwartz had that made some kind of like Russian, like a 
turning gouge or something and it's like it can only be used like while sitting or something mm-hmm. like that and it's like if you try and use it any other way it just doesn't make sense yeah it's like it's the way these people like uh, develop these tools and it's like uh, they if they're not used that way they don't really work we were having this conversation on the last podcast episode with ben bouchard about like how a tool is designed and why it's used in that way and we brought up the kindling knife from mora knives and a lot of people love these kindling knives and describe them as as draw knives and use them like draw knives they're double beveled or knife beveled or knife ground and they don't shave wood really well and people hate on them they call them pieces of crap and how can the swedes not make this work because it's not meant for that it's meant for those <laughs> perfectly straight grain pieces of wood that have no twist to them no knots in them and you split it with two hands safely in your house by the wood stove to split up your kindling for the fire that's what it's for and we get into these mindsets of we have to make it work the way we want things to work. So people will take a crooked knife and they'll bend it to look like a, like a spoon carving knife. And they'll make that real shepherd's crook shape to it. Oh, yeah. And now that point is so high above your knuckles that it is completely useless. You cannot actually gouge anything with that. You can't actually use it like that. But people think they can because, well, I can just smash two things together and call that a hybrid. No. That's not, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. We have spoon knives in our kits and crooked knives in our kits because both are used in different ways. Right? Yeah, like, does that make sense to everyone here or am I just shooting If you go away from design, it's like, uh, the, like, how can it work the same way that it was when it's like, uh, say like, when someone designs something it's like there's a lot of things going into factor and mm-hmm. what you mentioned about the crooked knives it's like it's about where your hand is in relation to the handle when you put the bend somewhere that's just like really far away from the hand that doesn't make sense it yeah. doesn't work but uh, when i was listening to that episode last week and you guys were talking about the push knife i'm sitting there looking at my push knife and i'm just like hey you guys get you guys should be be nicer to that push knife because i that a lot of spoon carvers it's recently been adopted but like not quite spoon carving it's in the bowl carving so mm. what you, you see, i use it for my bowls then what you do is yeah. on the outside of it is like um yeah some people like they they have that little ring in the end for those of you questioning what's going on right now he's standing up to show us yeah. on, a, on a audio podcast <laughs> what <laughs> well that it's basically because like uh, you guys may not you may not have heard of it yeah, before yeah. but it's like say like using the ring on the end of the knife and then like well, what's that called when you like pick up something and like put it down kind of like Oh, that's cleaving. Yeah, it's cleaving. Yeah, so it's like you can use it as cleaving. Mm-hmm. So you, you can do that. And people like to do that on the outside of bowls because that a lot of time you have to do the peeling grip towards yourself yep. on the outside of bowls. And that really takes it out of your hands. So those so that is inspired by the classic block knife. Actually, me and Radic were talking about this a few weeks yeah. back. Block knives or cobbler knives. They're sometimes also known as clog makers knives. We yeah. have a block with a big metal staple with your ring on your knife. That, and that gives you the leverage, almost like a paper cut. Yeah, that, so I've seen those. That, that, I think they call them stock knives too, right? Depends on the but, culture like, yeah. and depends on who's using them for what. But then, uh, so the other way I like to use this one is like literally just like having it on the chopping block or something. And then like uh, getting like really close and then like uh, say like the bowl sitting down flat on the thing. Mm-hmm. And then I go around the edges of it and then I just push down with the knife. And it's like, especially end a grain. little bit angled. Right. Yeah, that is. so yeah. it's like, and the fact that it's not a draw knife, it doesn't want to dig in, so you can come up and out of the cut really yeah. easily. Mm-hmm. But and and that's what I like during that episode. We weren't trying to say like you can't use it. Yeah, exactly. Else. And he said that like um, that I remember him saying that like there's like a, there's arguments about it or whatever because it's like obviously it's not designed to do the, what I'm doing with it, but yeah. it's like it'll work. It, it's a, it's the shape of a knife blade and yep. uh, I'm with putting it to wood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's like basically a two handled knife. Yeah, that, right? it's one it's one of those tools that a lot of people are making it do what they wanted it to do, what they want it to do. Just because it's like say with a draw knife or something, it's like 
the handles are angled so i can't it's not good for pushing yeah. up against a thing you can so, kind of do it but your hands are gonna get some blisters on them if you do it for more than a couple yeah minutes. and with this it's like i don't end up like hitting my knuckles off the chopping block as yeah, much yeah, so yeah. it's a lot nicer and also just like it saves me a lot of time with shaving end grain mm -hmm. so it's like a yeah, like uh, so there's something that's like we're using it for not quite what it's designed for but it's like it works well yeah but it's like i'll bet you like if we really got into it it's like there's probably something that does that a lot better yeah that that classic like clog maker's knife would do great for that kind of stuff and there's actually push knives that are meant that are designed with a single bevel kind of like a draw knife that you can then turn it around and use that bevel on an inside radius to be able to scoop with I think part of it is the cheapness of it. Yeah, everyone's yeah and that's what everybody likes. It's, it's a cheap thing price. from Mora, and yeah. I think you can get those push knives from Jason Lawnen, yeah, uh, tool maker out of like the Carolinas or something like that. Mm, I've yeah, seen but... him sort of. He's a tool maker, and he's been sure. posting those push knives. But and yeah. those and the uh, the handles are canted a little bit. That, I didn't like that about his knives. Yeah, because it's like I was picturing like trying to like uh, hitting my hands off the chopping block. Well, I'm thinking about just pushing on an, on that angle. It makes a lot of sense to be mm -hmm. able to push with your hand because if you're pushing when with like for those again now we're doing like charades on an audio thing, <laughs> but if you're picturing a flat bar and I'm holding that flat bar, that is not actually conducive to our body's mechanics my wrists at like a boxer stance you look at a boxer stance mm -hmm. they're not perfectly vertical they're not perfectly horizontal they're canted so that makes total sense to me on a body mechanic level if i can push with a lot more control oh it does yeah. and like draw knives are made with those angles yep. of handles too totally i'm just gonna say sort of what john just to reiterate what john said like it's about economy right yep. like i can yeah. get this mora push knife for or like the wood splitting knife for yep. like 60 bucks and or less then or less yeah. and then there's this sort of blacksmith i want to support everybody but sort of you know handmade is handmade yeah and sometimes you can afford it sometimes you can justify it sometimes you can't so mm -hmm. i mean that tool like that mora functions phenomenally for yeah, yeah. you know so what would i ask yeah. for it and the nice thing about it too i was going to say it's got a little bit of flex to the blade have yeah. you noticed that uh, I think it's not the I've most only, rigid I've only used it a few times so far. okay so yeah. it's not the most rigid blade well, it's flexy it's like a knife, yeah. yeah and it's laminated steel right mm -hmm. and and so it's got a little bit of flex so especially for carving sort of the outside of an end grain cup or yeah. bowl you can get a little bit of flex into it and mm. yeah it I, it works phenomenally for that cool yeah but it's really interesting because yeah it's like um because like, Jason Lennon, like, he's a really good blacksmith, and it's just like, hey, he's probably, in his design, he's probably not thinking that, like, you're sitting right with a small bowl, like a, well, like one of our feast bowls that we've been making, mm -hmm. and setting that right on a chopping block and trying to cut down or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like, uh, there's uh, there's ways that tools are designed to be used or whatever, right? Totally. And it's just like, yeah, it's almost like... Uh, like a, well, I mean, a draw knife, you use it with a... Uh, shave horse shave or a vice. Right, or a vice, yeah. yeah. And then, so with one of those push knives i wonder if that's intended to be used with like a spoon mule or some kind of equivalent mm -hmm. right uh, so it's like um so this is what i was thinking like uh, sometimes you end up adapting a tool but to your job one that you're able to get a hold of or sometimes it's like maybe that tool doesn't exist so it's like basically like a mini stock knife is kind of like what it is so it's yeah. like we're basically just like 
well, this thing's close enough, and we're just kind of making it do that thing. Yeah. And then you just level up and get a forge and become <laughs> Start a blacksmith and just make the tool that yes, you want yeah. to make. Sean Hellman, when you mentioned Jason Lemons on Push Knives, I, I was like, um, I asked John John Mulaney the other day, like, what what this push knife was because he had one that was like that. Like, a, a, how long is the scale? I'm bad with measurements. Two and a half feet, give or take. Yeah, so about two and a half, like a, probably about two foot, like a two foot long push knife. And I was like, holy crap, like, where did you get that? And then he's just like, oh, Sean Hellman. It's just like, oh my God, like <laughs> that, that would carve the outside of a giant bowl. Yeah. And there's, and there's so many different directions we can go. So for a starter, <laughs> for a starter, the one thing I want to say is I want to reiterate what we said on the podcast last week with Ben Bouchard, which is the Adam Savage philosophy of tool purchasing by the cheapest stuff you can get that's still well made like not complete crap and then see what fails or breaks first before you decide to invest a so that you don't invest like let's say john wanted to become a spoon carver way back in 2015 2014 mm-hmm. buys every single expensive piece of equipment and gets into it for like a, a week and realizes this is not what he's interested in <laughs> buy handmade knives yeah. yeah and he realizes i'm not really interested in carving anymore and he has a bunch of like thousand dollars worth of equipment and and that's the first mistake. The second part is you. Oh, R- I was going to say, say I'd like to encourage everybody to do that. Yeah. Because then people like John and I can <laughs> swoop in afterwards and buy their tools that, when cheap, they sell them. That happens yeah. all the time. There's a, actually so if anyone's looking to get into carving, to use Spoon Tool Co on um, Instagram. They it's just basically a place where people like carvers that came in and like eventually went out or like. People have a tool fetish uh, in the spoon carving thing. Like yep. uh, every bushcraft yeah, has a tool fetish. Uh, it's like uh, so. Like I have like seven hook knives at home. <laughs> it's like uh, <laughs> I have two. I yeah. think, and then this Tuka cam. I'm not counting my Tuka cams. Oh jeez, <laughs> <Jeez, laughs> yeah. really? Uh, I bought one from Max way back when when he first started blacksmithing. I got one from Belzebub, and then I got a Nick Westerman. And then, uh, yeah, like uh, my hooks, at one point I had a Ben Orford I sold. Uh, I've got like nine more hook knives. I have two Robin Woods. I have three, all three Nick Westermans, a hands card. So how many are you getting rid of? None. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought about that recently. Like I have my one buddy over and I'm just like talking about one of my Nick Westermans. Like, oh, I don't really like it that much. He's like, well, if you ever sell it, it's like, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's There's a good point in there of if you buy cheap first, you're going to eventually graduate up to certain things, but you'll notice certain tools that are cheap that you still really like using. And that gives you a chance to evolve. Moral so, 106. Moral like 106. The, uh, yeah. Uh, trying to think of another good example. Like some people, they'll, they'll start off with a cheap hatchet that they got from a flea market. And they clean it up. They do all this work on it. And then down the road, they pick up a Gransfors Brooks, a Kelthoff, something like that. That's a good handmade, hand-forged, carving specific axe and that's what you should do actually like you should go out and do, like uh, my my first axe that i still use for splitting wood and debarking because it has a good edge on it is like this random axe that was covered in blue paint that i found in my grandpa's mm-hmm. garage it's just like this random little hatchet and if you put a right edge on it, it works exactly and i've i've been in a situation where i have a couple of carving axes in my collection now and i still fall back on other axes that i've had for years that were cheaper like five dollar found at a flea market or at a, a yard sale. And I realized, holy crap, why do I keep going to these more expensive things? Same thing with knives. You can get away with a lot of stuff with a more, especially if you get a good edge on it. If you're scared to break the tool too, or if you're scared to wreck it or something, yeah. like when you're first starting out, imagine like carving with a hundred dollar knife or something like that. Like, uh, and you're Plus, like, 
two three hundred dollar knife yeah exactly like some people can drop like half a grand on a knife and they just got into wood carving i I can't even think about a hundred dollar knife now that i mention it it's like they're either like fifty dollars or they're like two (laughs) hundred dollars plus yep yeah and Uh, there there's that there's that level of like start cheap start cheap without going to crap don't go to wish.com for your carving tools there's decent ones on amazon i've been playing with the beaver craft knives over the last three years now I'm not impressed with their spoon knives, like their hook knives. I'm not impressed with, yeah. but I really do like their straight blades. I really do like their chip carving knives. I enjoy them. Their steel's good, holds a good edge. I'm happy with those. And those are very inexpensive. You can buy kits from them for like $30. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I feel like uh, that that's something I should have mentioned too was Beavercraft because I haven't gotten to try any of their tools yet, but it's like their spoon knives I wouldn't quite recommend. That, you know, but like um, everything handles else. handles are blocking. The blades are wide. Well, you cannot so, do a lot with them. Uh, I'm that the only knife I've seen on Instagram that's broke are beaver crafts. Really? Yeah. So I've seen probably five different posts of people with broken like beaver craft spoon knives hmm. and stuff like that. Like they just snapped. Yeah. And it's like, right, imagine that. Like, have you ever seen a snap knife addict? No. I've I, so not a carving knife anyway. I, I can say right now that I've got their their version of like a Tuca cam, which is very very long, thin handle, very very thin blade. And it feels kind of bouncy, but I've hogged out on oak with that thing. I don't think they're a bad company, though. And they've, so, so what I'm getting at is, like, yeah. there's probably some lemons in there. And I, I know that they're not being made in, like, America, England, France, or the, the more well-known places where cutlery comes from. But they are definitely, like... I think it's from Ukraine, right? I believe it's from the Ukraine. And they may be from another Eastern European country. I don't really know. I believe it's Ukraine or Hungary. I think it's Ukraine now that I'm saying it out loud. And I've gotten some really good blacksmith tools from the Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, Fadir tools. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like, uh, so I should say this though about Beavercraft. It's like, I may have seen their knives snapped, <clears throat> but the most recent one that I've seen that something happened, Beavercraft sent them a bunch of new stuff and yeah. like sent them stuff to give away to their followers. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, they're really, they're a yeah. good company from what I know of them. Yeah. I was going to say, um, Fadir Tools, like I've got one of their, I guess it's uh, their collab with Woodsman's Finest, mm-hmm. the Journeyman the Axe, yeah, yeah. and it's like, I still obviously drool and one day would love a Grant's First Brooks carving, like Swedish carving axe, mm-hmm. but like that axe from the, from like a baby spoon to chopsticks to a big old bowl to a cup, like that axe is like phenomenal mm-hmm. yeah, and there's not really wait times for the, those kind of tools either like you're not going to wait to buy a knife from more a beaver craft or you're like for your tools like that we're talking about like that's one of the higher class tools it's like you're going to be spending like a couple hundred dollars on one mm-hmm. of their tools but it's like uh, they're good and it's like they're one of the people that are supplying like the big craze of spoon carving right now yeah so the, the another big thing that comes up with that is um I'm trying to remember where my train of thought was going when we're looking at like that cost area, you can like, I at the beginning of the pandemic decided that I was going to make my own. I took an old carpenter's uh, single bevel um, broad hatchet that was just damaged. Whoever had it before me really mangled it. And I took an angle grinder and I basically drew a template that I've been working on over a couple of months, put the template on the blade and cut away everything that wasn't on the template. And then I reheat treated the blade straighten the blade made it a little bit more in line and conducive to what i needed and then i put a handle on i've been using that as a carving axe and it cost me three dollars and then three or four hours of work with an angle grinder so another way to sort of approach it economically is 
buy just blade only mm -hmm. you know maybe not some from somebody like nick westerman or anything yeah. like that but like if you can like for example those heli knives yeah like that's a good example and this isn't necessarily for carving i mean you could probably but even more more yeah. does blade onlys yeah and i mean you can get something for like a third of the price mm -hmm. and the really critical thing there is the steel like you yeah. can literally just wedge it into a dogwood and it's not very yeah. hard to make a handle too like it that so if anyone's never made one like it might seem a bit daunting but it's like you can take a block of wood like i uh, say like my first one it's like it's not the most ideal thing but it's like complete block of wood drill like a, a square drill a hole in it like uh, you can like uh, if you wanted to like you could just like epoxy it in there it's like you don't really care about that much and then just sand the outside until it's comfortable like uh, it doesn't have to be rocket science to make a knife handle growing up the the way that we would make knife handles is we would buy cheap mora blades or any knife that's handled broken we had the tang sticking out of we would take that tang and we would go and find a young white birch that's just a bit bigger than your hand grip and you go to them and you cut them down and there's going to be a little bit of a pith in the middle. Not as much as like dogwood or by any means sumac, but there's a little fine pith in there. And that's your center line. And what we would do is we'd set the knife end grain, like cross grain on a block of wood, tip in, tap it in with a hammer or a mallet to set it. And then we'd put that pith right on the tip of the tang and just drive it home with a, with a wooden block or a mallet. And the, what we noticed is one out of four would break, but the other three would never break those handles would last years and we would just carve them down to shape with a rasp or with an actual, another, another knife we had. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we had three of them just made, we'll just use one and shape the other ones until they get close to size and <laughs> finish that one off. And that's how we made a lot of our first bushcraft knives. We would just find old files and grind them and shape them into a blade and then drive the tang into the handle. And as the wood shrunk from drying, it would actually get tighter around that. So that's not always the case, but with young birch saplings, the, the, those tiny, inch and a quarter inch and a half thick birches that are usually still red they haven't gone to the white paper yet those are like and leave the bark on if you can if you can keep them of the right size and it's comfortable because the bark is going to support that wood when you drive it in then you can shave it all off when you're ready to go at the end mm -hmm. but yeah there's so many different ways to go with making your own tools or buying your own tools what are your preferred woods for a newcomer what would you recommend for a newcomer so that's kind of the, what's kind of funny is like um i started with cedar and pine which like mm. i in my mind like they're soft woods and like now like i know like cedar's really soft but when i first started carving with like a hook knife like cedar seemed like one of the hardest things in the world to me when i didn't have a sharp knife because yeah. it's like it's so like fluffy and stuff like that yeah. it was like really interesting mm -hmm. and like a, especially trying to sand it up to get a nice finish and like pine and cedar like it wasn't working out very well mm. so it's like i'd recommend like something like basswood uh, would be great for starting like when i started my favorite thing to carve was usually birch like some nice wet birch green yeah. fresh like yeah. sopping wet but still. be careful you don't let it mold that, that's the thing like uh, so like uh, we talk about birch bark all the time on this podcast <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh so um uh, when you cut that birch tree down and lay it on the ground or whatever it's like uh, that bark uh, that keeps the moisture out so well for canoes and everything it's like it's going to keep the moisture in that tree and that tree's going to rot so fast like quicker yeah. than anything like you might like uh, a couple months yeah that sometimes not even like if you leave that thing on the ground it's like i can almost like come back to it in like a month sometimes and if it's been really wet it's like it's starting to go yeah like it's like almost like past like it's just like casual spalting 
it's mm. too punky eh? yeah exactly it's just like it goes away so fast and it's like it, it but if you keep it up off the ground and stuff then like say like take some bark off or like you split it like there's things you can do but it's like yeah like don't just like take a birch and like go like cut it down in the forest and like take like one piece and let the rest rot away go and trim a branch next time yeah <laughs> that, that, like yeah. Uh, that's what i mean like yeah and you learn that stuff the hard way and stuff when you're first starting out too it's because it's just like i'm saying that because i did that like mm -hmm. oh mm -hmm. I was going to say, be careful with like conifers too, because they split pretty quick, pretty easily. Yeah. So if you are sort of like roughing something out with an ax, like Poof, lose yeah. a whole piece and right uh, there. Also, that's another thing. It's like when starting out, it's like you don't have to start with an ax. It's like, uh, so like I did, but it's like, um, it's like you don't really need to, especially in this day and age. Because yeah. it's like, say, like I was just this college kid living in Lindsay, so like I didn't have access to like a bandsaw or anything. But if you know some of the bandsaw and you just want to try out some carving, you can grab a little more 106. You don't have to do all this time to find an axe, sharpen up an axe, and then carve a spoon on an axe block. Which, if you've never really used an axe, it's going to feel kind of dangerous, and it kind of is. And you should be thinking that the whole time so that you don't cut yourself. Mm -hmm. But like, um, Oh, what was I just saying? <laughs> Axe carving, like depending on what you're, what you've got available, there's different ways to shed to rough it out and everything else. Oh, uh, so saws. yeah, so yeah, like uh, you don't have to use an axe. You can use a bandsaw. You can buy blanks from people. Mm -hmm. Like it, and, and people sell all kinds of blanks and stuff totally. like that. And there's so green wood versus seasoned wood. That there's always going to be debates on that. I don't care personally i've got techniques to get past get past the, the the problems of seasoned wood that i like to employ but um beyond that i think like when we're talking about conifer versus hardwood like like cedar pine one thing that needs to be brought up is also like the end results they're gonna probably impart flavor and that may not be something you want i i've had i had a coffee cup for years that i carved out of cedar and every time i drank coffee I had some cedar flavor more than the coffee flavor in there. And yeah. I didn't really enjoy that after a while. And they take dents too, because the yeah, wood's softer. They're not that durable. I was going to say, I carved as a gift for a friend a little, like she, her favorite beverage or like sort of adult beverage is gin. Right. And so I had this juniper that I was pruning or like mm. a red cedar. Yeah, yeah. And so I carved a little stirring spoon for like, um, for cocktails or whatever out of red cedar which is juniper which is juniper yeah, yeah. um because i thought like if she's going to be mixing cocktails it already tastes like gin that makes sense <laughs> yeah. that makes sense <laughs> just and accentuates then, that and there's like directions with that when we're making maple sugar uh we have to use a paddle to to stir the sugar and so i often make them out of maple because if it's gonna if i'm gonna impart any flavor i might as well impart the flavor of the maple because it's maple <laughs> sugar but i usually go for birch uh poplar basswood things that aren't going to impart flavor because they're neutral flavored for those kinds of projects but then there's also like strengths of woods and qualities of woods when i'm making porousness a porosity uh the, the, the porosity so, <laughs> porousness <laughs> so this cup this this bowl this feast bowl that me and john have talked about a couple of times this is a black ash burl uh fraxinus nigra black ash uh bapomagok or bapomagok in an ishnabimon and it's a beautiful burl. Like we've all, it's like every person has looked at this, this bowl has been like, Caleb, this is so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I haven't used it as a bowl yet because this is extremely porous wood. Ash is like, it's, it's also semi ring porous, which means that the, in between the grains, there's pores like straws. 
So I have to treat this with something like tongue oil and let it seal and, and cure and become solid as a block before I can put any hot soup or stew in this because it's just going to soak into the wood and make the wood get soupy and get weird. And then eventually I could potentially have it go rancid. I was going to say, it's not food safe at that point. Yeah. Right? yeah. So you got to get a food safe sealant to go on there for that, those kinds of projects. Whereas if we use something like birch, there's that cup that you carved me over a year ago that I've been drinking. I've drank probably about 80 liters to maybe even 80 gallons of coffee. Out of, <laughs> and it doesn't taste like coffee and it doesn't have any weird impartment to the wood. The wood is nice and sealed. And I know you did seal it, I believe, but yeah, I think you just use oil. You use tongue oil. Yeah. But if it's birch, like you don't necessarily need to for something like coffee or tea. If you're doing things like chili or something that's acidic that can leach in, sure. Mm -hmm. But that cup, I've never treated it. I've, I wash it. I rinse it out. I put it away and dry it in the sun and I use it the next day. Like it's it, that cup gets used daily for coffee. That's my coffee cup. I was going to say birch is probably my fave for carving. Like there's, you know, there's different properties. I would say it's predominantly dictated by what you have available. So people in central Ontario, from Southern Ontario, birch. Yeah. Talk, talk more about birch. Yeah. And so, I mean, here it's quite abundant in mm. central Ontario where we live. It's also sort of an early successional species. Yeah, of, yeah. So sort of it starts the process of building forest ecosystems. Mm. And so, I mean, there's a lot of birch. They're not, in most instances, like paper birch isn't very long lived. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes, you know, if you're just walking around the bush and, you know, it's also one of the favorite foods of beaver. Mm. So you'll find a beaver would maybe will have downed one or look for, um, wind blown trees yeah, yeah. uh like after windstorms and so on and so forth but uh you know to be honest with you where i get most of my wood from is just contacting like i have a couple arborist buddies and i'm getting heaps of wood from them more than i could ever know what to do with <laughs> i yep. sort of have well. shared some with john before i'm a little bit of a source in peterborough for green wood yeah it's yeah. like come check out this pile of like i got black walnut and to be sort of resourceful anytime i hear a chainsaw in Go the knock, city. Go I'm like, hi. I'm like, hey, do you mind if I have a piece of this Norway maple, or do you mind <laughs> if I have a piece of the sugar maple? Uh, most arborists, like, you're doing them a favor because that means that that's one less piece of wood that they got to pick up. Yeah, right? or have to pay for to get rid of. Yeah, because sometimes they got to put in landfilling. They got to pay for that waste because they have nowhere to put the wood chip or the the logs. Yeah, most people are like me though. Also, where I feel like we don't know our tree species that well. It's like. I know, like, the, the maple, like, the, the maple leaf or whatever, but it's, like, I'm not, like, radic where I can look at, like, uh, where I can see, like, if you put 10 different maple trees in front of me, I can't tell you exactly which one not all of them is kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, like... Um, and that's a skill you can learn. Yeah, um, exactly. But it's, like, a, that's why it's just, like, trying something. Like, so yeah. someone from, like, Italy, I think, messaged me, like, a couple weeks ago, and they're, like, hey, I want to get uh, started in carving. Like, what should I do? And, like, well, what wood should I use? Like, well, where do I even learn? And I'm just, like... <laughs> So use whatever you have around. That's that, not toxic. That, well, that <laughs> it's basically like try it. If it doesn't work, try something else. Like totally. uh, just use what you have. That mm -hmm. basically is like a big thing. And something about birch that I like that also is like um, you know, you mentioned that they're not long living, and it's like uh, they grow up pretty fast too. So mm -hmm. it's like say like uh, if you carve a birch tree or something, and someone takes it on a birch tree, it's not like 
taking down a maple tree or something but it's like uh, i've went away from taking down trees like when i first started it's like um when you have like that big rush inside of you it's like you don't realize at that time when like you're just like uh, i don't know that i guess you have a well, what would the mind like you're not thinking about everything and like the big picture you're you're very much in the moment yeah you're in the moment you're just like oh i really want to carve spoons and stuff but it's like when when you think about it, it's like that's a forest trees fall down naturally like go find yourself a piece of maple that fell down because it's like the entire thing isn't going to be rotted mm -hmm. there go cut and prune a branch off a tree that's not going to hurt the tree like yeah yeah go to your local apple orchard and do them a favor and but, prune some yeah. some apple trees and they'll you get can, better apples for it totally. and you'll get some beautiful carving wood because fruit make, woods make friends with your arborists arborists yeah. talk also... to them and say like hey what is that tree what, you, what are you guys cutting today oh that's a walnut oh i know walnut's a good wood for something you mind if i get some pieces i would also say look into the wood database the online yeah. wood database it's a phenomenal so it'll tell you about like the hardness of the stone of the of the stone hardness of the wood it'll tell you about like how it finishes but it can also has a toxicity category so you can be like oh this wood from this tree might kill me or this wood may impart bad flavors or the sawdust might be an irritant to my eyes, nose and, and membranes of my mouth. Yeah. White cedar. Yeah. If you get that in your eye, the sawdust. Oh, oh man. man. Yeah. yeah. There's a bunch of small things like that. Like isn't cherry bark like really toxic to like animals or kids and stuff like it that? It can. Yeah. Yeah. Cherry bark. Tannins, right? Well, it's also hydrocyanide. Oh, okay. There, there's actual like poison in it that is uh it's not as deadly as we like to make it think it's toxic towards a lot of bugs which is why the tree produces it to protect itself mm -hmm. um it's an anti-nutrient mostly is hydrocyanide it's a very potent anti-nutrient that can actually kill you in large enough doses like if you ate cherry pits all day you would die but the cherry bark itself won't kill a kid but it sure as hell will make that kid sick and then that but so I don't, I haven't carved buckthorn because the buckthorn has always been like, a, uh, I haven't, I've never actually looked it up. Like, is it toxic or is it not? There is toxicity to them. The inner bark, uh, like the phloem layer and xylem layer can carry a lot of toxins. The fruit are where the most toxins are though. Mm -hmm. And it's not a killing toxin. It's so toxic that it makes you puke almost within moments of consuming. That's actually part of its name, Ramnus cathartica. Mm -hmm. It literally means cathartica, catharsis, purging of the body. That's why its name is purging buckthorn. Um, but the wood itself is pretty durable and it's pretty fairly food safe from what I've been able to find. I've made a few purging buckthorn spoons. They hurt to carve. Oh, it's so dense. That's the problem. I've never really seen, dense wood. I've never seen anyone say buckthorn is not toxic to or buckthorn is 100% food safe. I've never heard anyone say that. And you hear that with a lot of woods. There's a lot of woods that we just don't have enough research into the toxicity of the wood. We know that the outer bark or inner bark is toxic and we know that the um the the fruit can be toxic or the leaves may be toxic, but we haven't actually just looked at the wood itself because we presume well the bark is made from the xylem and the phloem. Or sorry, the wood is made from the xylem and the phloem, therefore it must have the same toxins. That doesn't seem to always be the case. How many cherry spoons have you made? Yeah, a ton, but yeah, so that's one of the things. It's just like when something's not like as much accepted, it's like, say, like, you know, people have been using cherry for however long, but mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't think people have been using buckthorn and stuff for eating wear and stuff. So it's like, I, uh, this mostly comes into when you're selling things because it's like, uh, who cares if you poison yourself, right? <laughs> true, but, true. Like, uh, if you poison someone else, that's the problem. Yeah. That so like also like say like um making sure you and that so like uh 
making sure you use a food safe oil and also like say like i don't use walnut oil because like uh, i'm scared of people with nut allergies and stuff like maybe they buy a spoon and they don't Mm -hmm. tell you that they have a nut allergy because they're just buying a spoon yeah 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 that's true i i use a lot of animal fats to finish my woods and i have to make that uh, open whenever somebody wants to buy like a spoon or a cup i made and they're vegan Oh, yeah. I have to think about that. I never thought about it until about a year ago when I made a little cup and a friend asked to buy it off me. And I was like, yeah, yeah sure. And they started to pull the money out of their pocket. And then like, what'd you finish with? Like bear oil. Oh, that's the fat of a bear that's been rendered into oil. And they're like, I can't eat that. I'm like, no, you can't. Thank you. I'll take the cup back. Thanks. Hmm. That was an awkward conversation. <laughs> I was going to say with Buckthorn, I know there's a guy in Michigan who carves almost mm. exclusively buckthorn, that, buckthorn because yeah. his job is literally buckthorn removal. Yep. Yeah. His, his well, operation is invasive species control and he's cutting European buckthorns, AKA purging buckthorns um, all day and all night. And yeah. sort of the, to make the most of it, he's using it to. And it's a pretty wood. It's it, very it pretty. Nice. It's very dense. Insanely <laughs> dense. It's hard on your hands. It's hard on your tools, but yeah. you know, I mean, in terms of its sort of food safety, like unless you're sucking on the wood, I don't think you'd really be drawing anything out. Yeah, and it's, it depends it's, on what the tree the, is, but yeah, yeah, you know, in many instances. But like in for a lot of hardwoods, like the the inner wood is structure. It's not really yeah. living tissue, exactly. And so it's just it's structure for the tree to grow up, right? And so yeah, I think with um, with European buckthorn, I think you're pretty good. You know, like, I mean, I got to test this out a little bit, but I've made a few spoons out of it. It's, you got to carve it like as green as possible. And I use my boiling trick on buckthorn a lot. Is that harder that, so the hardest wood I think I've carved so far was black locust. Is it harder Harder. than black locust? Harder. What? Yeah. Yeah, Is it harder than ironwood? No. Ironwood is a different level altogether. I haven't carved one out of ironwood, but uh, that guy from Bob Cajun carved an ironwood spoon one time. I remember looking at it. He was like, holy crap, this was hard to carve. And it was just like super beautiful. And it's like, oh. (laughs) Beach is nice that way. Beach is like one of the, so like when I'm talking about woods to carve now, it's just like birch, beech, maple, like, um, what is it? Like poplar you can carve, but it's Mm -hmm. a little bit softer uh, than the basswood. Yep. There's um willow. cherry, but willow cherry, cherry willow. Most of your hardwoods that are not overly dense and fruit woods like, and fruit woods, yeah. Fruit woods are like a lot of things when like green. Uh, yeah, they, so fruit woods are like also get super hard. I would compare carving buckthorn to apple, like crab yeah. apple. Yeah, it's denser than apple, but it's comparable to that. Yeah. yeah. The biggest thing about buckthorn that I noticed is all the epicormal branch knots. Oh my God. They're everywhere. They're, you, the, the whole tree is knotty. <laughs> the whole tree is knotty. There's nowhere that your knife goes that isn't knotted wood. So there's something we didn't talk about actually. So like, if you're going to carve a spoon for yourself, you want to get wood. It's like get wood without knots. Yeah, because yeah, that if it, there's a knot, it's like you can technically carve it, but around that knot, whatever grain direction was that was happening, that's completely established throughout the entire spoon. You get to that knot, it Different. could it could go whatever way it wants, and mm-hmm. it could like make it could do a three sixty in that the, the area <laughs> yeah. of that one little knot. The sharper your knife, 
the more forgiving yeah it's like a, the, a sharp knife can kind of just like it skips over some of it just kind of like ignores the direction basically because it's just like i'm going to cut you anyway it's a lightsaber yeah that, exactly <laughs> it's almost like you lightsaber some of those spots but make sure you get a piece without knots to make your life easier in other words don't use persian buckthorn because there's nothing but knots <laughs> yeah. i've carved out and i thought i had a bird's eye buckthorn it just ended up being just so many thousands knots. of little knots all through the wood and i was like trying to carve through them to get that spoon and it was the nightmare absolute nightmare um fruit woods are good apple pear i like those woods banana doesn't have wood so don't try to use them but uh yeah that is pretty much the end of it like i think if we've talked about most of our we have a, a wood finishing episode of the podcast if you want to check that out you can find out where we talk about oiling uh, as well as other types of ways to finish with different stains, different dyes. Check that one out. I want to kind of beat a dead horse tonight because we're all on a time crunch here. But uh, I want to thank Radic. I want to thank John. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, guys, yeah, for recording for having us. me. I love the podcast. <laughs> like, uh, man, it's kind of funny to say that, but it's like uh, when I'm sitting at home, like I just sit there and like listen to this uh, like a lot. Like whenever you put out a new episode, I just listen to it. So it's fun to be on it and like you connect with all the man. other people. <laughs> <laughs> no, that like if you guys have never actually met Caleb in real life, it's like uh, just being able to like hang out with Caleb and listen to what he has to say. Like before we came on the podcast, I'm just getting a history lesson, like. Basically, the kind of stuff that you can't find on the internet that you can only get from talking to like so many people and just living like a life where you care about your heritage and stuff. Yeah, Caleb is a, a he's an amazing person. Thank you, John. That's really kind of you. You don't have to say that. <laughs> I'll slide the fifty to you later. Thank you, <laughs> Radic. Again, thank you to you, John. Thank you to you. Uh, to everybody paying attention so far, thank you for joining us on the show tonight. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to be saying thank you to our patrons from Patreon as well, but. To all of you listening, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast. We want to give a big shout out to our patrons on Patreon, our supporters for Patreon that are helping keep the lights on here, uh, keeping the internet going, being able to get us the right equipment to be able to do these recordings, uh, and being able to just afford to be able to keep the podcast moving. We want to thank people like Christine, Tamar, Nancy, Angie, and Jesse, and many, many other people. If you want to be part of Patreon and support the podcast, go over to patreon.com. You can find Canadian Bushcraft there. I think it's uh, www.patreon.com forward slash uh, Canadian Bushcraft. And if you go over there, you'll be seeing those kickbacks. Every two weeks, we do uh, virtual campfires where everybody can get together and work on crafts and talk and just share stories, everybody from every tier. And once a month, we do online courses just for certain tiers. There's also a lot of other kickbacks, such as getting your name mentioned on the podcast and many, many other things. So if you want to support us, we'll try to support you back. So go on over to Canadian Bushcrafts Patreon and join today.